This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Pursuit by Lester Del Rey. It's read by Dale Grothman for LibriVox. It runs 1 hour 59 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pursuit by Lester Del Rey. Recording by Dale Grothman. Chapter 1. Fear Cut Through the Unconscious Mind of Wilbur Hawks. With almost physical violence, it tightened his throat and knifed at his heart. It darted into his numbed brain, screaming at him. He was a soft egg in a vast globe of elastic gelatin. Two creatures swam menacingly through the resisting globe toward him. The gelatin fought against them, but they came on. One was near and made a mystic pass. He screamed at it, and the gelatin grew stronger, throwing them back and away. Suddenly the creatures drew back. A door opened, and they were gone. But he couldn't let them go. If they escaped... Hawks jerked upright in his bed, gasping out a hoarse cry, and the sound of his own voice completed the awakening. He opened his eyes to the murky darkness that was barely relieved by the little nightlight. For a second the nightmare was so strong on his mind that he seemed to see two shadows beyond the door, rushing down the steps. He fought off the illusion, and with straining senses jerked his head around the room. There was nothing there. Sweat was beating on his forehead, and he could feel his pulse racing. He had to get out. Had to leave. At once. He forced the idea aside. There was something cloudy in his mind, and he made reason take over and shove away some of the heavy fear. His fingers found a cigarette and lighted it automatically. The first familiar breath of smoke in his lungs helped. He drew in deeply again, while the tiny sounds in the room became meaningful. There was the incessant ticking of the clock, and the soft shushing sound of a tape recorder. He stared at the machine, running on fast rewind, and reversed it to play, but the tape seemed to be blank or erased. He crushed the cigarette out on the tabletop where other butts lay in disorder. It looked wrong, and his mind leaped up in sudden frantic fear before he could comment again. This time, reason echoed his emotional unease. Hawks had never smoked before, but his fingers were already lighting another by old habit. His thoughts lurched, seeking for an answer. There was only a vague sense of something missing. A period of time seemed to have passed. It felt like a long period, but he had no memory of it. There had been the final fight with Irma. Then he'd gone stalking out of the house, telling her to get a divorce any way she wanted. He'd opened the mailbox and taken out a letter. A letter from a professor. His mind refused to go any further. There was only a complete blank after that. But it had been in midwinter, and now he could make out the faint outlines of full-leaved trees against the sky through the window. Months had gone by, and there was no faintest trace of them in his mind. They'll get you. You can't escape. Hurry. Go. 
Go! The cigarette fell from his shaking hands, and he was half out of the bed before the rational part of his mind could cut off the fear thoughts. He flipped on the light, afraid of the darkness. It didn't help. The room was dusty, as if unused for months, and there was a cobweb in one corner by the mirror. His own face shocked him. It was the same lean, sharp-figured face as ever, under a shock of nondescript sandy hair. His ears stuck out too much, and his lips were a trifle too thin. It looked no more than his thirty years, but it was a strained face now, painted with weeks of fatigue and grayish with fear. Sweat streaked, and with nervous tension in every corded tendon of his throat. His somewhat bony, average-height figure shook visibly as he climbed from the bed. Hawk stood fighting himself, trying to get back in the bed, but it was a losing battle. Something seemed to swing up from the corners of the room, as if a shadow moved. He jerked his head toward it, but there was nothing there. He heard his breath rasp harshly, and his knuckles whitened. There was a taste of blood in the corner of his mouth, where he was biting his lips. Get out! They'll be here at once! Leave! Go! His hands were already fumbling with his underclothing. He drew on briefs jerkily and grabbed for a shirt and suit he had never seen before. He was no longer thinking now. Blind panic was winning. He thrust his feet into shoes, not bothering with socks. A slip of paper fell from his coat with big, scrawled Greek letters. He saw only the last line as it fell to the floor, some equation that ended with the infinity sign. Then Psi and Alpha connected by a dash. The Alpha sign had been scratched out, and something written over it. He tried to reach it, and more paper spilled from his coat pocket. The fear washed up more strongly. He forgot the papers. Even the cigarettes were too far away for him to return to them. His wallet lay on the chair, and he barely grabbed it before the urge overpowered him completely. The doorknob slipped in his sweaty hands, but he managed to turn it. The elevator wasn't at his floor, and he couldn't stop for it. His feet pounded on the stairs, taking him down the three floors to the street at a breakneck pace. The walls of the stairway seemed to rush together, as if trying to close the way. He screamed at them until they were behind, and he was charging out of the front door. A half-drunken couple was coming in, a fat old man and a slim girl he barely saw. He hit them, throwing them aside. He jerked from the entrance. Cars were streaming down West End Avenue. He dashed across, paying no attention to them. His rush carried him onto the opposite sidewalk. Then, finally, the blank panic left him, and he was leaning against a building, gasping for breath and wondering whether his heart could endure the next beat. Across the street, the fat man he had hit was coming after him. Hawks gathered himself together to apologize, but the words never came. A second blinding horror hit at him, and his eyes darted upward to the windows of his apartment. It was only a tiny glow at first, like a drop from the heart of a sun. Then, before he could more than blink, it spread until the whole apartment seemed to blaze. A gout of smoke poured from the shattered window, and a dull concussion struck his ears. 
The infernally bright flame flickered, leaped outward from the window, and died down almost as quickly as it had come, leaving twisted, half-molten metal where the window frames had been. They'd almost gotten him. Hawks felt his legs weaken and quiver, while his eyes remained glued to the spot that had lighted the whole street a second before. They'd tried, but he'd escaped in time. It must have been a thermite bomb. Nothing but thermite could be that hot. He had never imagined that even such a bomb could give so much heat so quickly. Where? In the tape recorder? He waited numbly, expecting more fire, but the brief flame seemed to have died out completely. He shook his head, unbelievingly, and started to cross the street again, to survey the damage, or to join the crowd that was beginning to collect. Fear surged up in him again, halting his steps, as if he'd struck a physical barrier. With it came the sound of an auto-horn, the button held down permanently. His eyes darted down the street to see a long, gray sedan with old-fashioned running boards coming around the corner on two wheels. Its brakes screeched, and it skidded to a halt beside Hawk's apartment building. A slim young man in gray tweeds leapt out of it and came to a stop. He threw back heavy black hair with a toss of his head and ran into the crowd that parted to let him through. Someone began pointing toward Hawks. Hawks tried to slide around the corner without being seen, but a flashlight in the young man's hand pinpointed him. A yell went up. There he goes! His feet sounded hopelessly on the sidewalk as he dashed up toward Broadway, but behind came the sound of others in pursuit, and the shouting was becoming a meaningless babble as others took it up. There was no longer any doubt. Someone was certainly after him. There'd been no time to turn in an alarm over the fire in his apartment. They'd been coming for him before that started. What hideous crime had he committed during the period he couldn't remember? Or what spy ringing had encircled him? He had no time to think of the questions, even. He ducked into a thin swarm of a few people leaving a theater, just as the pursuing group rounded the corner with the slim young man in the lead. Their cries were enough. Hands reached for him from the theater crowd, and a foot stretched out to trip him up. Terror lent speed to his legs, but he could never outdistance them as long as others picked up the chase. A sudden blast of heat struck down, and the air was golden and hazy above him. He staggered sideways, blinded by the glare. The crowd was screaming in fear now, no longer holding him back. He felt the edge of a subway entrance. There was no other choice. He ducked down the steps while his vision slowly returned, and risked a glance back at the street, just as the whole entrance came down in a wreck of broken wood and metal. A clap of thundering noise sounded above him, drowning out the hoarse screams of the people. The few persons in the station rushed for the fallen entrance, to mill about it crazily, just as the train pulled in. Hawks started toward it, and then realized his pursuers would suspect that whatever frightful weapon had been used against him had backfired on them, but they'd catch him at the next stop. He found a space at the end of the platform, and dropped off, 
skirting behind the train and avoiding the high-voltage rails. The uptown platform held only three people, and they seemed to be too busy at the other end, trying to see the wreckage, to notice him. He vaulted onto it and dashed into the men's room. The few contents of his coat pocket came out quickly, and he began to stuff them into his trousers. He shoved the coat into a garbage can, wet his hair and slicked it back, and opened his shirt collar. The change didn't make much of a disguise, but they wouldn't be expecting him to show up so near where he entered. His skin prickled as he came out, but he fought down the sickness in his stomach. A few drops of rain were beginning to fall, and the crowd around the accident was thinning out. That might help him, or it might prove more dangerous. He had to chance it. He stopped to buy a paper, maintaining an air of casual interest in the crowd. What happened? he asked. The newsstand attendant jerked his eyes back from the excitement reluctantly. Damned if I know. Someone said ball lightning came down and broke over there. Caved in the entrance. Nobody's hurt seriously, they say. I was just stacking up to go home when I heard it go off. Didn't see it. Just saw the entrance fall in. Hawks picked up his change and turned back across Broadway, pretending he was studying the paper. The dateline showed it was July 10th, just seven months from the beginning of his memory lapse. He couldn't believe that there had been time enough for any group to invent a heat ray, if such a thing could exist. Yet nothing else would explain the two sudden bursts of flame he had seen. Even if it could be invented, it could hardly be used in public for anything less than a national emergency. What had happened in the seven blanked-out months? Chapter 2 The room was smelly and cheap, with dirty walls and no carpet on the floor, but it was a relief after the hours of tramping and riding about the city. Hawks sat on a rickety chair, letting the wetness dry out of his clothes. He looked at the bed, trying to convince himself that he could strip and warm up there while his clothes dried. But something in his head warned him that he couldn't. He'd have to be ready to run again. The same urge had made him demand a room on the ground floor, where he could escape through the window if they found him. They could never find him here, but they would. Sooner or later, whatever was after him would come. It had seemed simple enough before. There had been three friends he could trust. Seven months, he had felt, couldn't have killed their faith in him, no matter what he'd done. And perhaps he'd been right, though there'd been no chance to test it. He'd almost been caught at the first place. The two men outside had seemed to be no more than a couple of friends waiting for a bus. Only the approach of another man who resembled Hawks had tipped him off by the quick interest they had shown. The other places had also been posted, and beyond the third he'd seen the gray sedan with the running boards, parked back in the shadows, waiting. There had been less than ten dollars in his wallet, and most of that had gone for cab fares. He'd barely had enough left for this dingy room, the late edition of the newspaper, 
and the coffee and doughnuts which lay beside him, half-consumed. He glanced toward the door, listening with quick fear as the steps sounded on the stairs. Then he drew his breath in again and reached for the newspaper. But it told him as little as the first one had. This one mentioned the two mysterious explosions of ball lightning in a feature on the first page, but only as a curiosity. They even gave his address and listed the apartment as being in his name, though apparently not currently occupied. But no other reference was made to him or to the chase. He shook his head at that. He couldn't see a newspaper man refusing to make a story of it if there was any other news about him to which they could tie the burning of his apartment. Apparently it was not the police who were after him, and he hadn't been guilty of anything so ordinary as murder. Outside the window a sudden scream sounded, and he jerked from the chair, reaching the door before he realized it was only a cat on the prowl. He shuddered, his old hatred of cats coming to the surface. For a minute he thought of shutting the window, but he couldn't cut off his chance to retreat through the garbage-littered backyard. He returned to his search, beginning an inventory of the few belongings that had been in his pocket. There was a notebook, and he scanned it rapidly. A few pages were missing, and most were blank. There was only a shopping list. That puzzled him for a minute. He couldn't believe he'd taken to using lipstick as well as cigarettes, though both were listed in his handwriting. The notebook contained nothing else. He stuffed it back into his pockets along with his key ring. There were more keys than he'd expected, some of which were strange to him, but none held any mark that would identify them. He put a few pennies into another pocket. His entire wealth, now, in a world where no more money would be available to him. He grimaced, dropping a comb into the same pocket. Then there was only his wallet left. His identification card was there, unchanged. Behind it, where his wife's picture had always been, there was only a folded clipping. He drew it out, hoping for a clue. It was only an announcement of people killed in an airline crash, and among those found dead, was Mrs. Wilbur Hawkes of New York. It seemed that Irma had never reached Reno for the divorce. He tried to feel sorrow at that, but time had healed whatever hurt there had been, even though he couldn't remember. She had hated him ever since she'd found that he really wasn't willing to please his father by becoming another of the vice presidents in the old man's bank, with an unearned but fancy salary. He'd preferred teaching mathematics and dabbling with a bit of research into the probable value of the ESP work being done at Duke University. He'd explained why he hated banking. Irma had made it clear that she really needed a mink coat no assistant professor could afford. It had been stalemate, a bitter seven-year stalemate, until she finally gave up hope and demanded a divorce. He threw the clipping away and pulled out a final bit of paper. It was a rent receipt for a cold-water apartment on the poorer section of West End. From the price of $18 a month, it had to be a cold-water place. He frowned, considering it. Apartment 12. 
That might explain why his own apartment had been unused, though it made little sense to him. It would probably be watched by now anyway. He jerked to his feet at the sound on the windowsill, but it was only a cat eyeing the unfinished doughnut. He threw the food out, and the cat dived after it. Hawks waited for the touch of ice along his backbone to go away. This time he tried to ignore it. He picked up the paper and began going through it, looking for something that might give him some slight clue. But there was nothing there. Only a heading on the inside page that stirred his curiosity. Scientist seeks confinement. He glanced at it, noting that a Professor Meinzer, formerly of City College, had appeared at Bellevue, asking to be put away in a padded cell, preferably with a straitjacket. The professor had only explained that he considered himself dangerous to society. No other reason was found. Professor Meinzer had been doing private work, believed to be related to his theory that... The panic was back, thick in Hawk's throat. He jerked back against the wall, his heart racing, while he tried to fight it down. There was no sound from the hall or outside. He forced his eyes back to the paper, and the paper was surrounded by a golden haze. It burst into a momentary flame as the haze flickered out. Hawks dropped the ashes from his clammy hands. He hadn't been burned. You can't escape. Run. They'll get you. He heard the outside door open, as it had opened a hundred times. But now it could only mean that more were coming. He jerked for the open window. Something came sailing through the air to hit the sill. Hawks screamed weakly, far down in his throat, before his eyes could register the fact that it was only the cat again. Then the cat let out a horrible beginning of a sound and its poor, half-starved body seemed to turn inside out, with a churning motion that Hawks could barely see. Blood and gore spattered from it, striking his face and clothes. He froze, unable to move. Either they were outside in the yard, or whatever frightful weapon they used could work through a closed door. He tried to move, first one way, then the other. His feet remained frozen. Then steps sounded in the hallway, and he waited no longer. His legs came suddenly to life, hurling him over the carcass of the cat and outside. He went charging through the refuge, and then leaped and clawed his way over the fence. The alley was deserted, and he shot down it to swing right and into another alley. It wasn't until his muscles began to fail that he could control himself enough to stop and stumbled into a darkened spot among the garbage cans, spent and gasping for breath. There was no sign of anyone following. Hawks had no idea how they could trace him, but he was beginning to suspect that nothing was impossible, judging by the results of their weapons. For a moment, though, he seemed to have shaken off pursuit, and the physical fatigue had apparently eased some of his terror. What had shocked him into losing seven months out of his memory, and still could drive him into absolute terror at the first sign of them? He couldn't go back to the room, and his own apartment was out of the question. The rain had stopped, mercifully, but he couldn't walk the streets indefinitely, 
dirty and bedraggled as he was. He tried to think of something to do, but all his schemes took money, which he no longer had. Finally, he arose wearily. Maybe the apartment for which he had the rent receipt was watched, but he'd have to chance it. There was no place else. He had been accidentally heading toward it, and he continued now, sticking to the alleys, until he reached West End Avenue. He tried to hurry, but the best his tired muscles could do was a slow shuffle. Light was beginning to show faintly in the sky, but it was still too early for more than a few cars and a chance pedestrian. At this hour, the avenue was used by only a few cruising cabs, heading toward better sections. He shuffled along, trying to look like a man on his way home after too much night out. The cat blood on his clothes bothered him until he tried weaving a little as he walked, imitating the drunks he has seen often enough. He passed an all-night diner and fished for his pennies, but there were several men inside. He went on, past 59th Street, heading for the apartment, which should be near 67th. He was just reaching the top of the hill near 64th when a gray sedan sped along, heading downtown. There were running boards on it, and behind the wheel sat the slim young man who'd given chase to Hawks before. Hawks tried to duck, but the sedan was already braking and swinging back. It was beside him before he could realize more than the old clamor of his brain, telling him to run, that he couldn't escape. The car matched his speed, and the driver leaned far to the right. Will Hawks, the young man called. How about a lift? The smile was pleasant, and the voice was casual, as if they were old friends. There was no gun in the man's hand. It might have been any honest offer of a ride. Hawks braced himself, just as a patrol car turned into the avenue ahead. He opened his mouth to scream, but his vocal cords were frozen. The young man followed his eyes to the patrol car and frowned. Then the gray sedan lifted smoothly upward to a height of twenty feet, turned sharply in midair, lifted again, and seemed to make a smooth landing on the top of a huge garage building. There was no roar of jets and no evidence of any means of propulsion. The patrol car went down the avenue heading for the diner. The officers inside apparently had missed the whole affair. Hawk's cowardly legs suddenly came unfrozen. He was conscious of them churning madly. With an effort, he got partial control of himself managed to focus on the house numbers. There were no watchers outside the number he wanted, though they could have been in the rooms across the street. He had no choice now. He leapt up the stairs and into the hallway. His eyes darted around, spotting a door that led out to the side, probably into an alley. He drew himself together, hiding behind the stairs, but there was no further pursuit for the moment. The fear that had seemed to come before each attack was missing. Maybe it meant he was safe for a moment, though it hadn't warned him of the car the young man was driving. Heat rays! Levitation! Hawks dropped to his knees as fatigue and reaction caught up with him again. But his mind churned over the new evidence. As a mathematician, he was sure such things could not exist. If they did, 
there would have been extension of math well in advance of the perfection of the machines, and he'd have known of it as speculative theory, at least. Yet, without such evidence, the devices apparently existed. The police weren't in on it, that much was certain. It was more than a hunt for a criminal. What had been going on during the months he had missed? His mind shuttled over the spy thrillers he had seen. If some nation had the secrets, and he had discovered them. But the heat ray would never have been used openly then. They wouldn't tip their hand. Anyway, the Cold War was still going on, and that would have been pointless when any nation had such power. And if the secret belonged to the United States, the young man would never have levitated to avoid police at the great risk of tipping off anyone who saw that such things could be done. Nothing made sense. Not even the crazy feeling of fear that had warned him on some occasions, and failed him this last time. The only explanation that was creditable was the totally incredible idea that some life, alien to Earth, and with strange unearthly powers, was after him, or that he was insane. He fumbled through a pack of cigarettes until he located the last one, streaked with sweat that was still pouring down his armpits, and lighted it. It was all answerless, just as his sudden need for a smoke was. Chapter 3 Hawks crushed out the cigarette and began climbing the wide stairs slowly. It was probably an ambush into which he was heading, but without this place, he had no chance of resting. He stared at the numbers painted on the dirty red doors and went on up a second flight of stairs. The number he wanted was at the end of the hall, dimly lighted. He dropped to the keyhole, but found it had been filled long ago, probably when the Yale lock was installed. He put his ear against the door and listened. There was no sound from the inside except a monotonous noise that must be water dripping from a leaky faucet. Finally, he climbed to his feet and reached for his keys. The third one he tried fitted, and the door swung open. He fumbled about, looking for a light switch, and finally struck a match. The switch was a string hanging down from a bare bulb. He pulled it, to find that he stood inside one of the old monstrosities with which New York is filled, a combination kitchen and bathroom with a tiny closet for a toilet in one corner. There was an icebox, a dirty stove, a Franklin heater connected to a chimney, a small sink, and a rickety table with four folding chairs. In a closet, cheap china showed. He went through that into a 7 by 12 living room. There was a cheap radio, a worn sofa, two more folding chairs, and a big typing table. The rug on the floor had been patched together. Then he breathed more easily. Over the back of one of the chairs was a sport jacket that he recognized as his own. He jerked it up suddenly and began going through the pockets, but they had already been emptied. It didn't matter. He no longer cared why he should be in a place so totally unlike any of his usual neat habits would have led him to. It was his. Then, as he came into the bedroom, he hesitated. It was smaller than the living room, with a bed that took up half of one wall, 
and two dressers jammed into the remaining space. One corner held a cardboard closet, and hanging on the hook was a man's raincoat and hat, both at least five sizes too big for him. His eyes darted about to find a strange mixture of things he remembered as his and possessions that he would never have owned. On one of the dressers was a small traveling case, filled with cosmetics and appliances which only a woman would use. He jerked open the closet, and his nose told him before his eyes that it held only female clothing. Yet on the shelf his old hat rested happily. He could make no sense of it. The place looked as if several people lived in it, and yet it wasn't really fitted for anyone to spend his whole time there. There was none of the accumulation of property that would fit any permanent resident. He went out of the bedroom, passing the typewriter desk. The typewriter was an old standard Olympia, a German machine which he'd refitted with a Dvorak keyboard, which he had learned for greater efficiency. He was sure nobody else would want it. The dishes were dusty, and there was no food in the icebox. Now, though, it began to fit. A place where it was convenient to stop in, but not a place to live. And perhaps he had been in the habit of lending it to others, though why he shouldn't have used his own apartment was something he still couldn't understand. It was possible there was no record of this place. He began shucking off his shirt as he went back through the living room, until the marks on the rug caught his eyes. Something heavy had rested there recently. There had been other desks about, or heavy-laden tables, and a bit of paper under the sofa could only have come from one of the complicated computing machines used in high-powered mathematics. He scanned the fragment, making no sense of it, except that it was esoteric enough to belong to any new branch of theory. For a second, the heat rays and levitation entered his head, but none of the symbols fitted such a branch of physical development. What had been going on here, and why had the machines been removed so recently that their traces still looked fresh? He shook his head and froze as a key turned in the lock. There was no time for flight. She stood in the doorway, blinking at the light before he could turn. She, of course, was the girl who he'd barely noticed when he knocked the couple down as he charged out of his apartment. Of course? He puzzled over that. He almost expected it. And yet, now that he looked more closely, he couldn't even be sure that she was the same. She wore the same green jacket, but nothing else that he could be sure of, because he had no other memory of that girl. This one was two inches shorter than he was, with dark red hair and the deepest blue eyes he had seen. She looked like an artist's conception of an Irish Colleen, except that her mouth was open half an inch, and she was studying him with the look of being about ready to scream. Who are you? He forced the words out at her. She shook her head and then smiled, doubtfully. Ellen Ibanez, naturally. You startled me, but you must be Wilbur Hawks, of course. Didn't you get my wire? He watched her, but there had been no stumbling over his name, and no effort to make it sound too casual. Apparently, the name meant nothing to her. He shook his head. 
What wire? Then he plunged ahead quickly. You've heard of amnesia? Good. Well, I've got it, partially. If you can tell me anything about myself before yesterday, miss, I'll never be anything but... He choked on that, unable to finish, and behind the surface emotions, his mind was poised, sniffing for danger. There was no feeling of it, though he kept telling himself alternately that she had been the girl at the door, and that she obviously had not been. He'd seen her before. The tilt of her head, that unmatchable hair. You poor man! Her voice was all sympathy, and the bag she was carrying dropped to the floor as she came over. You mean you really can't remember? At all? Not for the last seven months. She seemed surprised. But that was when you answered my advertisement. I never saw you, though you did call me, and your voice sounds familiar. You sent me the check, and I mailed you the key. That was all. I must have given you references, told you something. Again she shook her head. Nothing. You said you were a teacher at CCNY, and that you were quitting, and wanted a place to use for an office. You didn't care what it was like. That's all. Hawks felt she was lying, but it could have been true, and in his present state he probably believed everyone was other than they seemed. He remembered the gray sedan rising to the roof, and the cat turning inside out. Sickness hit at him. He groped back towards a chair, sinking into it. He'd almost found a refuge, and even hoped that he could find some of the missing past. Now, he must have partially fainted. He heard vague sounds, and then she was putting something against his lips. It was bitter and hot, though it only remotely resembled coffee. He gulped it gratefully, not caring that it was sweet and black. He saw the bottle of old coffee powder, caked with age, and heard the water boiling on the stove. Idly, he wondered whether he'd bought that jar originally, or she had. Then his senses snapped back. Thanks, he muttered thickly. He groped his way to his feet, his head slowly clearing. I guess I'd better go now. She forced him back into the chair. You're in no condition to leave here, Will Hawks. Ugh, your shoes are filthy. Let me help you. There, isn't that better? Whatever it is you've been doing to yourself, you should be ashamed. You're going straight to bed while I clean some of this up. His head had sunk back on the table, and everything reached him through a thick fog. It wasn't right. Girls didn't act that way to strange men who looked as if they'd come from a Bowery fight. Girls didn't take men's clothes off. Girls didn't. He let her carry him into the bedroom and tried to protest as she put him between the clean sheets. He stared at the view of his lavender shorts against the fresh whiteness while things seemed far away. He'd played with a girl named Ellen once when he was eleven and she was nine. She'd had bright copper hair, and her name had been, what had it been? Not Ibanez. Bennett. That was it. Ellen Bennett. He must have said it aloud. She chuckled. Of course, Will, though I never thought you'd be the same Will Hawkins. I knew it when I saw the scar on your shoulder where you cut yourself sliding down our cellar door. Go to sleep. Sliding down into clouds of sleep. Sleep. She drugged him. 
something in the coffee. He jerked up, reaching for her, but she ducked aside, drawing on the tops of a pair of frilly pajamas. Ellen, you... Shh! She pulled a robe on over the pajamas and lay down outside the blankets. Shh! Well, you have to sleep. You're so tired, so sleepy. Her voice was soothing, and the fingers along the base of his neck was relaxing. He reached out a last inquiring finger of doubt for the feeling of danger, but couldn't find it. This was as wrong as the other things had been wrong, but his mind let go, and he was suddenly asleep. He awoke slowly with a thick feeling in his mouth, drugged, and the sense of danger had failed him again. He swung over sharply, reaching for her, but she was gone. His clothes lay beside him, neatly pressed, and he grabbed for them. There was a pair of socks, too large, but better than none. His muscles felt wrong as he began dressing, but the feeling wore away. The clock said less than two hours had passed. If she'd put a drug in the coffee, it must have been one to which he was less sensitive than average. She'd probably never suspected that he would waken. A trace of fear struck through him, but it was weaker than before, and it seemed normal enough under the circumstances. He fumbled over the shoelaces, then grabbed up his coat. She'd bring them back. Maybe they'd used her as a spy. But he couldn't understand why she'd bothered to press his clothes, and the apartment still puzzled him. Even if her story was true, it simply isn't the sort of place where a girl like her would live. Nor was it fixed as she might have arranged a place, even allowing for what he might have done to it in seven months. He reached automatically for the lock in the dim hall, realizing his hand knew the door, whatever else was true. Then he went out, and down the stairs. He heard a babble of kids' voices, part in English, part in some sort of Spanish. That meant that things were normal to the casual observer along the street, but he knew it was poor evidence that things really were as they should be. He stood in comparative darkness in the hall, staring out. Nothing was wrong, so far as he could see. He had to risk it. Hawks shoved past the women on the steps and headed down West End, trying not to seem in a hurry. His eyes turned up to the roof of the garage, but he could see nothing there. He'd half expected that the slim young man would be parked up on the roof, waiting. Then the fear began, mounting slowly. He jerked around quickly, scanning the street. For a second he thought he saw the slim figure, but it was only a back turned to him, and it disappeared into a barber shop, probably someone else. The fear mounted a little, and he found his steps quickening. He cut around the corner, where men were crowded into a little restaurant. He was heading into a dead-end street, but there was an alley leading from it. He had to keep off the main streets. Footsteps sounded behind him. He moved faster, and the footsteps also speeded up. He slowed, and they kept on. Then they were nearly behind him, just as he reached the alley and jerked back into it, grabbing for a broken bottle he had spotted. Will! It was a gasping wheeze. Will, for God's sake, it's only me. I know everything. Your amnesia. Let me explain. It stopped him. He held the bottle carefully as a fat figure of an old man stepped slowly around the corner, fear written on every aged wrinkle. 
It was the man he'd stumbled into when he dashed out of his apartment, but the fear there matched his own so completely that he dropped the bottle. The other man stood trembling, gasping for breath. Then he gathered himself together, though his pudgy hands still clenched tightly, showing white knuckles. Will, he repeated, you must believe me. I know about you. I want to help you. If there's any help for you, God forgive us both. And God have mercy on earth. It's worse than you can believe. And different. It's horror washed over the old man's face. He stood, fighting with himself. Hawks felt his own back hairs lift, and he drew back. For a second the fat man seemed to waver before him, as if his body was only a projection. Then it quieted. It almost had me for a second. He turned back to Hawks, trying to control the quivering muscles in his face. But his victory was still incomplete when he suddenly leapt up. Get back, Will! Oh, God! Oh, God! He leapt outward, his fat old legs pumping savagely. Then the air seemed to quiver. Where he had been there was only a dark cloud of smoke, spreading outwards in a rough equivalent of his shape. A spurt of steam leapt upwards savagely, and the smoke seemed darker. It began to drift on the air, touching a building, and left a spot of smudginess before it drifted on, getting thinner with each gust of wind. It was as if every atom of his body had suddenly disassociated itself from every other atom. Hawks found his fingernails cutting his palms, and there was blood flowing from his bitten tongue. He heard a hacking moan in his throat. He struggled against something that seemed to be holding him down, and then leapt at least ten feet to land running. The alley was twisted and narrow. He shot down it and around the corner. An ice house stood there, and he barely avoided the loading trucks. He was back near the apartment building where he'd found the girl, and he doubled to a door that showed. It seemed to be locked, but somehow he got through it. He seemed to melt through the door, though he wasn't sure if his lunge smashed it or whether his fingers had found the latch in time. He ducked around loose-hanging electrical wires, under twisted pipes, and across a pile of coal around the hot water heater. He twisted and turned and came into complete darkness and halt short, listening. The fear was going, and there were again no sounds of pursuit. But he couldn't be sure. He'd heard no sounds when the fat man had leapt out, but they had been there. Silently and thickly he cursed, to find a man who seemed to be his friend, and who knew about him, and then to have them kill that man with such horrible efficiency before he could learn what it was all about. He gagged in the darkness, almost fainting again. Then, slowly, it was too much. For the moment he could run no more, and nothing seemed to matter. He understood his sudden bravado no better than the unnatural cowardice that had been riding his shoulders. But he shrugged and moved forward. The dark passage led out to the steps that carried him up to the sidewalk in front of the building. Ellen Ibanez, or Bennett, was less than five feet from him. Her eyes were fixed firmly on his face. Chapter 4 She seemed surprised, but tried to smile. I thought I left you asleep, Will, she said, in a tone that was meant to be bantering. What's the matter? The fuse blow? 
he accepted the excuse for his presence in the basement. Yeah, it did. You left the iron on. I wondered what happened to you. Nothing. Just shopping. There wasn't a bit of food in the place. And I must say, Will, you aren't much of a housekeeper. I bought pounds of soap. He followed her up the stairs, and his key opened the door. He was still operating on the general belief that they'd be least likely to spot him where they'd already found him once. If the girl had tipped them off, then they had it figured that he'd run off and probably wouldn't be back. He hoped so, at any rate. She was talking too briskly, and she was too careful not to mention that the iron was cool, with his cord wrapped neatly around the handle. He offered no explanation, but let her babble on about the strange coincidence of his being Will Hawkes, and how she had almost forgotten the childhood days. "'How come the Ibanez?' he asked finally. "'Stage name. I tried to make a go of musicals, but it wasn't my line, I found. But the name stuck.' And where'd you learn how to drug coffee that way? She changed expressions. There was even a touch of a twinkle in her eye. Waitress in a combination bar and restaurant. You needed the sleep, Will, and I guess I still feel as much a mother to you as I did when you used to get hurt so long ago. She had things out of the bags now, and he saw that she had been doing a lot of shopping. There had still been time enough to call the slim young man, though, or, he suddenly realized, the fat man. He had no more reason to believe her an enemy than a friend. Then he corrected that. If she'd known enough to call the fat man, and had been his friend, she could have told him things. She denied knowing anything, though. He couldn't understand why he trusted her, and yet, somehow, he did. Even if he knew she'd called them, he would still have to trust her. He was sure now that she was lying, and that she had been the girl at the door. But that meant she'd been with the fat man, and the fat man had seemed to be his friend. Or had the man been sent to lure him out, but miscalculated, and gotten only what had been meant for him? His head was spinning, and he gave up. He was a fool to trust her simply because the fear feeling subsided around her, but he had nothing better to do than to follow his hunches, and then try to play the odds as best he could. Cigarettes, she said, handing him a pack of his brand. And for me, shoe dye. Your shoes need it, and I couldn't find a shoe store. I did get a shirt, though, and a tie. You'll find a hat in that bag. Size seven and a quarter? He nodded gratefully, and went in to change. His old shirt had caught most of the cat's blood, and he needed a fresh one. There were a couple of spots on his trousers, but they'd do, and the sports jacket matched well enough. He daubed the dye onto his shoes, one of the combined polish and dye things. "'Cold cuts all right?' she asked, and he called back a vague answer that seemed to satisfy her. He was staring at the shoe dye. It worked fairly well when he experimented. He daubed it into his hair with a wisp of cotton. His hair began to mat down, but he found that combing it out as he went along removed the worst of the wax, and still left some of the color. It worked better than it should have done. He found a bottle of something that smelled of alcohol and belonged in her cosmetics, and began removing most of the mess. 
By being careful, he got the wax and most of the dye smell off, while leaving his hair darker. Better wash up, she called. There was a razor among the things she had bought. He daubed some of the dye on his upper lip, where the stubble of a mustache was showing. It was easier there, if it didn't wash off in soap and water. Some of it did, but when he finished shaving, he felt better. It wouldn't pass close inspection, but he now seemed to have darker hair, and the dye had exaggerated the little beginning of a mustache enough to make some changes in his appearance. He waited for her to comment, but she said nothing. He waited for her questions about what he was going to do, and her explanations that, of course, he couldn't stay there. She merely went on talking idly while they ate. It didn't fit. Finally, he stood up and began taking down the rope that was strung up over one end of the room, to be used as a clothesline, he supposed. She looked up at that. What? You can fight if you want to, he told her, or you can save yourself the headache of being knocked out. Take your choice. People don't pay much attention to screams in a place like this, and I'm not going to harm you if you'll take it easy. You mean it? Her eyes were huge in her face and there was a touch of fright now. She gulped visibly, and then seemed to go limp. All right, Will. In the bedroom? He nodded, and she went ahead of him. She didn't struggle until he was about to gag her. Then she drew her head aside. There's money in my bag, if you're going out. He swore hotly and sickly. If she'd only act just once as a normal female should. Maybe Irma had been a hysterical, cold-blooded fool, but she couldn't have been that much different from other women. Even the books indicated Ellen should be anything but so damn cooperative. If you'll tell me what's going on, I'll still let you go, he suggested, drawing her hands tighter together. I can't, Will. I don't know. He had to believe her. He knew she was telling the truth, at least to some extent and that made it so much worse. He bound the gag over her mouth as gently as he could, and closed the door behind him. Her big eyes haunted him as he turned to the telephone. The information girl at CCNY could only tell him that Wilbur Hawkes had resigned abruptly seven months before, and no one knew where he was. They had heard he was doing government research. He snorted at that. It was always the excuse but nobody knew anything. He tried a few other numbers and gave up. Nobody knew, and nobody seemed to react to his name any differently from what they would have done had he remained a quiet, professorish man minding his own business instead of being chased by... He couldn't complete that. The idea was still too fantastic. Even if there were alien life forms that had subtly invaded Earth, why should they pick on him? What good could a little unimportant mathematician do them, particularly if they had the powers he already knew they possessed? It was a poor answer, though not harder to believe than that any group on Earth could suddenly come up with miracles. Anyhow, men knew enough already to be pretty sure that Mars and Venus wouldn't have creatures that could invade Earth, and the other planets were hopeless perhaps from another star. But that would mean violating the theories of mass increase with the speed of light, 
and he was not ready to accept that yet. This time he went out of the building without looking first. It could do no good. They could hide from him, he knew, and he would only call attention to himself by looking around. With the change in appearance, he might get by. He moved rapidly up Broadway, where he found a little clothing store and a ready-made suit that nearly fit him. The tailor there seemed unconcerned when he insisted the cuffs be turned up at once, and that he wanted to wear it immediately. It took nearly an hour, but he felt safe for a change. The five and ten furnished a pair of heavy-rimmed glasses that seemed to have blanks in them, and he decided he might get by. There was no evidence of pursuit. He caught a cab and headed for the library. Ellen had been well-heeled, suspiciously so for a girl who lived in a cold-water flat like that. He'd peeled fifteen tens from her wallet, and there'd been more, not to mention the twenties. His conscience bothered him a bit, but he was in no position to worry too much. The library was still the puzzle of the ages to him. He'd used it half his life, and still found it impossible to guess why such a building had been chosen. But eventually he found the periodical room, and managed to get through the red tape enough to be given a small table with a stack of newspapers and magazines. The mathematics magazines interested him most. He poured through them, looking for a single hint of the things he had seen. Einstein's work with gravity stood out, but no real advances had come from it. It was still a philosophical rather than an actual attack on physics, as beautiful as a new theology, and about as hard to utilize. He skimmed through the pages, but nothing showed. No real advance had been made since his memory blanked out, except for one paper on a variable star which was interesting, but unhelpful. He threw them aside in disgust. He knew that it was useless to look in other languages. Work couldn't be done without some first stages that would be reported, and any significant new theory would be picked up and spread. Science wasn't yet completely under political wraps. For a second he stopped as he came to a paper bearing his byline. Then he grimaced. It was an old one, just published. His attempt to find how the phenomenon of poltergeists could be fitted into the conservation of energy, and his final proof that the whole business was sheer rubbish. It would be nice to be able to get back to life where he could fool around with such learned jokes. The newspapers, beginning with the last day he could remember, were almost as barren of results. There was a story of the Cold War, without the strange overtones that should be there if any of the major powers, where all the major scientists would tend to be, had found something new. He'd studied the statistical analysis of mob psychology at times, and felt sure he could spot the signs. He skimmed on without results, until he finally came to the current paper. This he read more carefully. There was no mention of him, but he found something on the fat man. It was a simple follow-up to the story about the scientist who'd turned himself in at Bellevue. The man had mysteriously disappeared three hours later. There was a picture, the face of the fat man, with Professor Arthur Meinzer under it. It didn't help. Hawks shoved the magazines and papers back and went through the series of halls and stairs that led him to the main reference room. 
inconveniently located on the top floor. He found the book he wanted and thumbed rapidly through it. Meiser was listed on the bottom of page 972, but as he looked for 973, a pile of ashes dribbled onto the floor. There was no use. They'd gotten here ahead of him. He made one final attempt. He called the college and asked for Meinzer, to find that nobody even knew the name. He knew they were lying, but he could do nothing about that. Maybe it was only because of the publicity, or maybe someone or something had gotten to them first. Fear was growing with him as he came out on the street. He ducked into a crowd and headed slowly into a corner drugstore, trying to seem inconspicuous, but the fear mounted. They were near. They would get him. Run. Go. He fought it down and found that it was weakened, either by his becoming used to it or because the urgency was less than it had been. He ducked into a phone booth and called the newspaper, keeping his eyes on both entrances to the store. It seemed to take forever to locate the proper man there, but finally he had his connection. Mine, sir, the voice said with a curious doubtfulness. Oh, hey, mister, that story's dead. Call up. The telephone melted slowly, dropping into a little cold puddle on the floor. Hawks had felt the tension mounting, and he was prepared for anything. Now he found himself on the street, darting across 42nd Street, against the light, without even remembering having left the booth. He stole a quick glance back, to see people staring at him with open mouths. He thought he saw a slim figure in gray tweeds, but he couldn't be sure, and there were probably thousands of such men in New York. He ducked into a bank, wormed his way around the various aisles, and out the back entrance. A cab was waiting there, and he held out a bill. I'm late, buddy. Penn Station? The cab driver took the bill and the hint and darted out just as the light was changing. Penn Station was as good a place to try to get lost from pursuit as any. Hawks examined his wallet, considered trying to get a train out, but he'd used up nearly all he had taken from Ellen. And all his careful disguise had proved useless. They weren't fooled, and this business of dodging was wearing thin. By now, they'd know his habits. He drew out a coin flipped it. It came up heads. He frowned, but there was nothing else to do. He moved down the ramp toward the subway that would carry him back to 66th and Broadway. He was probably walking into their trap by now, but the coin was right. He had to free Ellen. If they got him, it couldn't be much worse for him. Then he shuddered. He couldn't know whether it would be worse for his country, or even his world. He couldn't really know anything. Chapter 5 It was growing dark as he walked down 66th, eyeing every man suspiciously, and knowing his suspicions would do no good. He was still trying to think, though he knew his thoughts were as useless as his suspicions. If he could remember. His mind came up sharply against leaving Irma and taking out the mail. Then it went abruptly blank. What had been in the letter? It had been from a professor. It might have been from Professor Meinzer. That would tie in neatly. 
But Meiser was dead, and he couldn't remember. They'd stripped him of his memory. How? Why? Were they trying to prevent his getting information to others? Or were they trying to get something from him? What could he know? He dabbled with ESP mathematically, but now he found himself wondering if it could exist. Could they be tracking him by some natural or mechanical ability to read his mind? He strained his own mind to find a whisper of foreign thought outside his brain. He drew a blank, of course, as he'd expected. There were no answers. They could play with him like a cat juggling a mouse, letting him almost learn something, and then, always, they arrived just in time to prevent his success. Put a rat in a maze where it can't learn the path, and it goes insane. But what good would he be to anyone if they drove him insane? And why bother with all that when they could silence him as well by killing him? He'd forgotten to watch, and it was surprising to find his feet on the steps of the apartment building. He jerked back and bumped into someone. Sorry, the words came from behind him automatically, and he turned to see a slim young man stepping aside. For a second, their eyes met squarely. A row of teeth flashed in a brief smile as the man started around him. Guess I was thinking I should have watched where I was going. The man went on down the street and turned in at a restaurant entrance. Hawks lifted a foot that weighed a ton and slowly closed his mouth. He'd been facing away from the streetlight, and his face might have been hard to see. Yet, it didn't fit. The young man must have known him. He blanked it from his mind. He couldn't believe that it was anything but lack of recognition. It was hard to see here, where the other was facing the light, and he was in the shadow. But it still meant that they were waiting, nearby. He dashed up the stairs, expecting a rush at both landings. The normal sounds of the apartment house went on. He listened at his door, but he could hear nothing except the same drip that he had heard before. Slowly, he inserted the key and went in. The small bulb was still on. He crept along, trying to move silently on the floor that insisted on creaking. The living room was as he had left it, and he caught sight of Ellen on the bed. He spotted a mirror over one of the dressers and used it to study more of the bedroom. It seemed as empty as before. Finally, he stepped inside. There was no one there but Ellen, and she seemed to be asleep, doubled up in a position that might have made the unkind cords easier to stand. She moaned slightly as he untied her gently, but didn't awaken. Her breathing was regular and her breath had an odd muskiness of someone who had slept for several hours. He found a bottle of liquor on the shelf where she had put it, and rinsed out a couple of glasses. It was good liquor, good enough to take without mixers, as they'd have to do. She came awake when he called her, rubbing her eyes and then her wrists where the cords had left a mark. But she was smiling. Hi, Will. I knew you'd come back. Hey, not on an empty stomach. You need it, and so do I, he told her. Bottoms up. They were big glasses. She gasped over it, but she downed it, and then reached for the water he had brought as a chaser. 
She swallowed and blinked tears out of her eyes. I don't usually drink. He made no comment but refilled the glass. The liquor had less effect on him than he'd expected, though he'd always had a good head for it. It took some of the edge off his worrying, though. She giggled suddenly, and he frowned. She couldn't take much on an empty stomach, it seemed. Then he shrugged. Let her drink. Maybe if he could get her drunk, he could find something out. At least he might learn whether the slim young man had been there during the day. Like when you found your dad's cider, she said and giggled again. You got awful, <coughs> awful drunk, Will, didn't you? You were so funny. She was trying to be careful with her words already. She slid around, doing things that brought more honestly beautiful thigh into the light than Will had seen in ten years. He reached to adjust her dress, and she giggled again, sliding against him. You kissed me then, Willie, remember? Bet you don't remember. He began it coldly, deliberately. If he could work on her emotions enough, he'd crack the wall of evasion and lies somehow. He reached for her, calculating what would arouse her without causing any shock to bring her back to her senses. He hadn't counted on the quickness of her response, nor the complete acceptance of his right with which she took it. Liquor had reduced her to the stage of a little girl who completely trusted her companion. She seemed as unconscious of her body as a child might be. Instead of protesting, she reached down and began unfastening the buttons on her dress. It's your turn now, Willie. Put you to bed last night, you put me to bed tonight. Then you're going to kiss me good night. Nighty, 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 night. He felt like a heel at first. Then he began to feel like a man, any man, around a beautiful girl, half undressed, and getting more so. She slipped under the sheets, tossing out the last of her clothing, and crooning happily. Gonna kiss me good night, Willie. Nighty, night. He yanked the pull cord savagely, cutting off the light, and fumbling in the darkness. After what seemed hours of awkwardness, he slid in beside her, feeling her arms go around him in complete acceptance. To hell with them. They could chase him some other time. He pulled her to him, while his blood beat in his neck, and he began to lose any conscious volition of what he was doing. He drew her tighter, while a great clot of emotion set fire to his brain. He cold beyond anything he had known bit at him a tremendous pressure within him seemed about to force him to explode outward and the shock jerked him into full awareness in a split second he'd swung his eyes from the great jagged landscape on which he stood up an impossible range of mountains that were all harsh blacks and cold whites to the cold black sky in which the stars were blazing specks without a flicker he saw the earth above him bigger than the moon had ever been, and with the dim outlines of continents showing through the soft stuff that must be clouds. He was on the moon, and naked, without air. Almost at once something clapped down around him, and the pressure let up, while heat seemed to leap into the rocks under his feet and make them comfortable. He gulped down the air that somehow seemed to stay close to him instead of evaporating into the vacuum. The moon! Now they had him. Fear blazed in him, 
a stark, unreasoning terror that was like a physical thing. Run! But you can't run! They've got you! You can't escape! The light blotted out, and then snapped on, more strongly. He stood in the kitchen of the cold-water apartment, still naked, with bits of chalky dust between his toes. He had no time for reason. His brain seemed to have jumped over a hurdle and come down in a puddle beyond, foul with the stuff it had found there. He heard Ellen shriek, and then cry out again. He lurched into the bedroom, while she let out another gurgling cry as the light showed him in the doorway. She came out of the bed, leaping for him, calling his name, cold, sober, but he wanted none of her act. He shook her off. You damn alien, you filthy monster, disguised as a girl. When you get in a spot where I'm sure to find you out, you have a cute trick up your sleeves. But it won't work. You can send me back there, back to the rest of your kind, from wherever they came. But you won't fool me into thinking you're human again. You can't pass one test. He wouldn't be fooled into thinking it was a dream, either. He had been physically on the moon. The very dust on his feet proved that. They might drive him insane, but they wouldn't do it that way. She was crying now, gasping out words that he only half heard. I'm human, Will. Oh, I'm human. Then prove it. Come in here and prove it. She cried again at that, and he pulled her down with him. But slowly, her crying quieted. He awoke slowly, with the sunlight streaming in the windows, and reached for her. He owed her more apologies than one, though he wasn't too sorry about most of it. She had proven herself human, and virginally so. Her complete surrender still left something warm inside him, where only the madness and the fear had been before. Then he jerked upright, as he found her gone. He cursed himself for a fool, and listened for a stir and bustle from the kitchen, but there was none. He was getting used to dressing with a feeling of dire pressure driving him on. He finished rapidly, and yanked the bedroom door open, just as he heard the outer lock click. She was coming in with a bottle of cream and a package of sausages as he reached the kitchen, and there was a smile tucked into the corner of her mouth. And this time he knew she wouldn't have betrayed him. Yet the fear increased in him. He darted past her as she leaned to kiss him, heading for the door. The room seemed to quiver. The hall was filled with a faint golden haze. He had to get out. He jerked backwards, caught her hand, and pulled her. Ellen, we've got to get out. It was a half-articulated shout, and she resisted, but he began dragging her after him. Something fumbled at the lock, and the key slipped into it. The door opened. Hawks didn't know what kind of alien he expected. He knew that men could never have thrown him to the moon and back, not in another thousand years. It had to be a monster. But he should have known that monsters here came in human form. They have to. The fear rose to a shriek in his brain, and then died down as a human form entered. It was too normal, too familiar. A medium-sized man, dressed in a suit as inconspicuous as his own, wearing a silly little mustache that no outland monster should ever wear. The creature jumped in, slammed the door behind it. Stay there, 
You can't risk it outside now. We've got to... Hawks hit the figure with his shoulder in the best football fashion he could muster. It could try, but it couldn't keep him and Ellen here to be burned in their heat-ray bath or treated to whatever alien tortures they had in mind. He felt his shoulder hit, and he knew he'd missed. It was an arm that he struck against, and the arm brought him upright, while a second arm drew back and came forward with a savage right to his jaw. He went out with a dull plopping sound in his brain. Then, slowly, with an ache came out of the blackness, and the beginning of sound. He was fighting out of the unconsciousness, fighting against time and the monster who'd tried to steal Ellen. But Ellen's hands were on his head, and an ice-cold towel was wet against his forehead. Will! Will! He groaned and sat up. The other, alien or human, was gone. Where? he began. She was trying to help him to his feet, and he got up groggily, with his head beginning to clear. He just ran out, Will! Ellen was crying this time almost silently, with the words coming out between shakes of her shoulders. "'Will, we've got to get out. We've got to. The men are coming for you. They'll be here any minute. And it's wrong. It won't work. Oh, Will, hurry!' "'Men? Men are coming?' He'd almost forgotten that it could be men who were after him. "'I called them, Will. I thought I had to. But it won't work.' Will, do anything you like, but get out. They are fools. They... He opened the door and peered out the doorway into the hall, which seemed quiet. He'd been a fool again. He'd trusted her for some reason, as if a body and loyalty had to go together. They'd been smart, picking a virgin for the job. It must have cost them plenty, unless they'd twisted her mind somehow. Maybe they could do it, but he knew that whatever they looked like, it couldn't be real men who'd meet him out there. Why? he asked and was surprised at the flatness of his voice. She shook her head. Because I'm a fool, Will. Because I thought they could help you. Until he came. And besides, I'm still in love with you. Even if you've forgotten me. But the fear inside him was drowning out her words and the golden haze was faint in the air again. Okay, he said finally. Okay, don't burn her too, now that she's done your dirty work. I'm coming. The haze disappeared slowly, and he started down the stairs, still holding her hand. Chapter 6 There were men with guns in the street. He'd heard two shots as he came down the stairs and had shoved Ellen behind him, but it was silent now. People with dazed, frightened faces were still darting into the houses, leaving the street to the men with the guns. Hawks marched forward grimly, perversely, stripped of fear, even though he was sure some of the men out there were monsters, and others were their dupes. He tapped one of the men on the shoulder. Okay, here I am. The girl goes free. The man spun around as if mounted on a ball bearing and pulled by strings. The gun fell from his hand. His emotion-taught face loosened suddenly, seemed to run like melted wax, and congealed again in an expression of utter idiocy. 
He gargled frothily, and then screamed, high and shrill, like a tortured woman. Suddenly he was a lunging maniac tearing up the street. Now the others were running, some toward cars, some towards the corners, running flat and desperately on the flat of their feet without any spring in their motions. Hawks jerked his eyes down toward the big gas storage tanks where most of them had been, and the glow that had been in the corner of his vision was gone. Men seemed to be coming out of a trance. They were breaking away, forgetting about their guns, and fleeing. Three men alone were left. Hawks ducked back into the hall of the apartment, dragging Ellen with him. The glass of the door seemed somewhat dirty, but it made a dim mirror. He could see the slim young man and two others still there. The two men darted into a waiting car, and the leader turned up the street, running smoothly toward the apartment house. Hawks could make no sense of it, unless it was another of the seeming tricks designed to drive him out of his mind. He had decided he was one of the rats in the maze that didn't go crazy. The pressure could drive him somewhat mad, but it couldn't keep him that way. He didn't wait to see what had happened, or whether the sirens that were sounding now were reinforcements for the men with guns or the police. He didn't bother with the slim young man any more. They'd apparently used their dupes to frighten out the people, and then scared off the dupes, the poor humans who didn't know what it was all about. Now two of the three were gone, and the third monster was coming for him. He'd escaped before but sooner or later they'd catch him, once they were sure he wouldn't be driven insane. Or was this the beginning of insanity, a delusion of power, a feeling that he could escape? He could never know if it was. He had to assume that he was sane. He crouched back behind the stairs while the young man in the gray tweeds dashed up them. Then he headed out into the street. The siren was near now, and tardily he realized that the siren might herald the coming of the real monsters. It was as easy to look like a cop as any other human. He jerked open the door of the nearest car, pulled Ellen in, and kicked the motor to life. He gunned away from the curb, tossing it into second, and twisted around the corner, straight toward the siren that was nearest. At the last minute, he jerked into a side street to let the police car shoot by. Never run from a tiger, run toward it. It sometimes works, and it's no worse. The car was a big one, and the motor purred smoothly. He glanced down at the dash and frowned. There was no key in the switch. For a second he stared at it, then grinned. He'd picked the monster's car, apparently. They'd done a neat job of duplicating, but they didn't need all the safeguards that humans used, and the switch had obviously been a dummy. He looked at the buttons on the dash, wondering what would make it levitate. But he had no desire to test it, nor to stay in an auto which could probably be traced so easily. He braked to a halt outside the subway, and led Ellen down. We're down to the last hole, he told her, as the train pulled out of the station. How much money do you have? She shook her head and held up her arm. I left it, Will. They were beyond the last hole, then. He realized now that as long as they'd been in the crowded apartment house, filled with other humans, it had proved a tough nut to crack for the aliens. But on the move... Maybe we have a chance, he told her. If humans were after me, it'd be tough. 
but these things have to avoid the police. She looked at him, misery on her face. There are no aliens, Will. Those men you saw were FBI men. That's where I reported you. You? He stared at her, but she was serious. But there's nothing about me in the papers, Ellen. She pointed across the aisle, spread over two columns on the front page, an older picture of him showed plainly. And even at a distance, the heading was boldly legible. Hundred thousand dollar reward for this man. He stared at the figure twice, unbelieving. He was no longer alone against a small group of humans or aliens. Now every living human on the face of the planet would be looking for him. He could feel their hot breath on his neck, feel eyes staring at him through the papers. Fear began to rise in him, to be halted as the train ground to the new station. Ellen jerked him out, and he moved with her. It wasn't safe to be too long with one group, until they began to wonder and compare faces. But what? She shook her head. Nothing, Will. I don't know. What can we do? He'd been wondering while they moved quietly through the groups of people and up the stairs. There was no place left. He had about a dollar in change, and that would be of no use to them. They'd have to dig a hole in the ground and pull it over them. It jogged his memory, and he grabbed her hand and jerked open the door of a cab that was waiting for a light. He barked out an address, the corner of 10th Avenue and one of the streets below the 20s. The driver got into motion, not bothering to look back. The address was near enough to where Hawks wanted to be, an old warehouse with a loading platform. He'd played there as a kid, climbing back under it and digging holes down into the damp, soft earth, as kids have always done. He'd been by there since, and it had remained unchanged. Sooner or later the aliens would locate them, but it would give Ellen and him a chance to rest perhaps long enough for him to waylay someone at night and steal enough for them to leave town. That wouldn't help much, but it was all he had left to count on. He saw trucks loading there as he paid the cab driver. His heart sank abruptly until he studied the way the big trailer was parked. If he watched carefully, he could slip under it from the side, and there was a chance he wouldn't be seen. He darted beneath it. Luck for once, was with him as he drew Ellen under the trailer and the platform. The old opening was covered with rubble, but he scraped it aside and found the entrance barely big enough for them to wiggle through. Then they were back in a dark pocket under the back of the platform, barely big enough for them to sit upright. The hole had seemed bigger when he was a kid. Outside, he heard a boy's voice yelling, Monster attacks cops! Monster kills five cops. Extra paper. Now he was a monster to be shot on sight, probably. I shouldn't have brought you into this, Ellen, he said bitterly. I should have left you. You don't even know what's going on. You haven't the faintest idea. If it were just humans, as you think. She snuggled against him in the coldness of the little cave. Shh! I got you into it. I ratted on you, Scarface but he couldn't reply to her attempted at humor. There was no fear now, not even the relief of fear. He felt brave for a few minutes back in the hallway of the apartment. Now the chips were down and sunk. 
They were here, in a dank hole, without food and without a chance, while all the world searched for him to kill him, and while still unknown aliens with unknown reasons played out their little game with consummate skill and would inevitably locate him. It might take them a day. They probably would do nothing to him until night came and the warehouse street was deserted. Ten more hours. If he only knew what they wanted of him, or why, if he could remember. He sat there, numbed within himself. Ellen leaned her head forward into his lap, and he began stroking her hair softly. He'd have liked to have a chance with her. One night wasn't enough for a whole life. He reached down to draw her face to his. Fear hit him as something rustled behind him. He tried to turn and look, but his neck refused. The fear grew to panic and swelled higher as the golden haze began to sweep over the little cave. Then his muscles snapped his head around sharply. The slim young man was crawling toward them, holding something that looked like a flashlight. Behind it, he could see the tense lips drawn back over clenched teeth. The man wasn't smiling now. He opened his mouth just as the thing like a flashlight sprang into light. No time seemed to elapse, but suddenly Ellen and the young man were both gone, and he sat in a dark hole, alone. He let out an animal cry and dashed out, crawling through the opening, and kicking the rubble back as he went. He slipped out and under the trailer, but there was no sign. They'd taken her and left him unconscious. He groaned, trying to figure. He'd always gone back to the same place to hide since he'd found it. They must expect him back there. They'd take Ellen there and wait for him, drugging her, changing her mind, setting her up to use against him. The first time hadn't worked, but they'd try again. It had to be that. If they hadn't taken her there, he had no way of finding her, and he had to find her. He began running down the street, forcing himself to believe she was there. Then he slowed. It would be no good to have them all notice him here on the street. Somebody might recognize him then. He turned around, walking back to the bus stop. There were still two dimes and a nickel in his pocket. He hunched down on the seat of the bus that seemed to crawl up 10th Avenue, but no one noticed him in the almost empty vehicle. He got off at 66th and forced himself to walk to West End, up that to the apartment house. Men were drawing up in cars, men with guns in their hand. He made a final dash for the apartment entrance. This must be the real show, for which the other had been only a dress rehearsal to throw him off balance. They could wait. He fumbled with the lock until he finally got it open. Then he jumped in, slamming the door shut behind him. Ellen stood there, and the creature that had assaulted him before was pawing at her. But he had no time for the monster. Stay there, he shouted at her. You can't risk it outside now. We've got to. He saw she wasn't listening to him. He had to get rid of the creature somehow, if he could get it far enough away from her. Then they'd find some way to get outside without going out through the entrance. The creature sprang at him awkwardly. His arm darted down to catch one shoulder, and his right hand swung back and up. There was a savage satisfaction in seeing the creature crumble. 
Ellen's voice reached him. Will, Will, before I go crazy. You're free, he told her. Go down the fire escape and leave that here. I'll get rid of them out front somehow. He shut the door again and went down. The words had sounded brave enough, but there had been no courage behind them. Fear still rode him, like the little golden haze that again hovered over him, showing they had spotted him. He walked out, with it thick around him, rising slowly in temperature. They had him, but Ellen might get away. He walked down the steps, his hands up. They drew back, surprise and something else on their features, their eyes on the haze that surrounded him. They were shouting, but he couldn't hear the words over the shrieks of people along the street, rushing inside or trying to drag their kids to safety. Hawks doubled his legs under him and leapt. He was still attacking the tiger. The slim young man, down by the big gas storage tanks, directing the new crop of human dupes. His charge carried him there, while the young man slipped aside. Then someone fired a gun. He heard the young man yell hoarsely, No shooting! Stop it! Damn it! No shooting! They weren't paying any attention to the shouts. Bullets ticked against the tanks. Hawks ducked frantically, physical fear knotting his stomach. Suddenly, he seemed to jerk upwards, to find himself suspended in midair, fifty feet off the ground, just above the tanks. He stared down at the men, dizzy with the height, but no longer surprised by anything. They were pointing their guns upward while the young man leapt about among them. Bullets were splatting out though none came near Hawks. They seemed to ricochet off the air a few feet in front of him. The slim young man drew back, and now the rubble and stones along the street began to lift and to drive savagely at the attackers. A gale swept along the street, though Hawks could feel no breath of air, and the force of it was enough to knock most of them down. They got up and began running, dashing away from the super-science that the young man now seemed bent on turning against his own troop of dupes, now that they were out of control. Hawks came drifting downward. He started to cry out in fear until he noticed that the ground was coming up to him slowly and that he was slipping sideways. He landed on a street back of the tanks, as gently as a feather. Surprisingly, everyone was gone when he risked a glance back at the scene of the fight with the back of the slim young man just darting into the apartment house. Then Hawks cursed, as the creature came darting out with Ellen behind him, to leap into the car and drive off. The sound of sirens grew louder, and a police car swung into West End. Hawks straightened up slowly as it hit him. It had been the same scene he'd gone through before that morning, but with himself in the middle. He shot a glance at the sun, to see it still in the east, though his memory of the day indicated that it should have been afternoon. Time. They twisted him back through time. The weapon that looked like a flashlight must have tossed him hours backwards, instead of knocking him out. He'd been attacking himself there in the hallway of his apartment. He'd knocked himself out. And the fight that he had just come through was the same fight that he had seen come to its end before. 
Now his younger self, and Ellen, must be just fleeing toward the hideout under the loading platform, with the slim young man still following. If he could get there in time, before the man could run off with Ellen. Chapter 7 The paper he'd found kept the other passengers on the bus from seeing him, but he was too deep in his own thoughts to read it. His eyes roamed back to the story of the cop-killing monster, a seemingly harmless florist in Brooklyn who'd suddenly gone berserk and rushed down the streets with a knife. He'd been wrong in thinking it concerned him. And he'd been wrong about thinking anyone would try to kill him on sight. The reward notice and picture were in front of his eyes, but it was a reward for information, and there was a huge box that proclaimed he was not a criminal and must not be harmed or even allowed to know he was recognized. The facts only confused the issue. He twisted about in his mind, trying to explain why the young man had left him to drift down and gone rushing into the apartment. He was ready for the collecting, and he'd been left uncollected. The girl had said there were no aliens. Now he wondered. She had known more than he'd found from her. She'd known his brand of cigarettes, even and there had been a shopping list, with the lipstick on it, the same type he now remembered her using. He'd known her before, and not just as a little girl. That tied him in with Meinzer, who was a mystery in himself. He puzzled over it. The things that had happened to him had always been preceded by violent emotion, instead of followed by it. Usually it had been fear, but sometimes some other emotion as had been the case just before he was suddenly shifted to the moon. Whenever he seemed on the verge of discovering something, or emotional upset, it hit at him. Did that mean he was only susceptible to the phenomenon when off balance? It still didn't account for the fact that some things hadn't directly affected him at all. The more he knew, the less he knew. He got off the bus and headed for the warehouse. This time, he had to wait before he could see a chance to dart under the trailer and into the entrance. He noticed that the gray sedan was parked nearby. He darted in. They were still there. He heard Ellen's voice, sounding as if she had been crying, and then an answer from the other. He felt his way carefully over the rubble, working as close as he could. Now, if he sprang a few feet... Must be a time jump, the man's voice said doubtfully. I tell you, Ellen, those damn fools were firing at him, up there in the air, while you and I were still with him in the apartment. That's an angle of this psi-factor stuff we hadn't expected. The voice stopped for a moment. Then it picked up again. Gratit, I wish you hadn't called the FBI on him. They got rattled when he came out, looking like a saint with a halo, and jumped fifty feet up to float around. Some fools started shooting, and the rest joined in. I had to. He was talking about alien monsters. I thought he was going crazy, Dan. I couldn't tell him anything. I promised him I wouldn't, and I kept my promise. But I thought enough of them might catch him somehow. Dan, can't we find him now? He needs us. Hawks lay frozen. He tried to move forward, but his body was tense, waiting for more. 
If something happened now... Alien monsters? Dan's voice grew bitter. It is alien, and a monster. This psi-factor... The words blurred and seemed to echo and re-echo inside Hawk's head. That made twice he'd heard them mention the psi-factor, the strange ability of a few human minds to perform seeming miracles. Men who had it could roll dice the way they wanted. Young girls sometimes had it before puberty and could throw heavy objects around a room without touching them. They did not even know that they were the cause of the motion, but blamed it on poltergeists. Other men caused strange accidents. Fires, for instance. The old salamander legend. There'd been a piece of paper. Psi equals alpha. The psi factor was the beginning of infinity for mankind. But it had been wrong. He'd changed that on the other side. It should have read psi equals omega, the absolute end. He gasped hoarsely and heard their startled voices stop while the flashlight beam swung around to pick him out of the darkness. He felt Ellen and her younger brother Dan pulling him forward into the little cave with them. He heard their voices questioning him, but his head was spinning madly under the sudden flood of memories that the missing key word had suddenly brought back. The letter from Professor Meinzer that had been about his paper on poltergeists which the old man had seen before publication. He'd been doing research on the psi factor for the government, and he needed a mathematician, even one who could prove something that he knew wasn't true, provided the mathematics could handle his theories. Hawk's head was suddenly brimming with mental images of the seven months, while he worked on the mathematics to tie down the strange pattern of brain waves the old professor had found in the minds of those who had the mysterious psi factor. Dan had worked with them in a little cluttered apartment, building the apparatus they needed. It was through Dan that Ellen was hired, as a general assistant and secretary. There had been only four of them, working in the deepest secrecy in the three rooms, which the government had felt were more suitable to maintain complete security than any deeply buried laboratory could have been. Ellen made a pretense of living there, and it was a neighborhood where no landlady worried about the men who went into a girl's place, provided everything was quiet. They'd succeeded, too. They had found a tiny bundle of cells that controlled the psi factor, and learned to stimulate them by artificial wave trains and hypnosis. But the small group in the top division of the government to whom they were responsible had demanded more proof. Hawks had treated himself secretly, not knowing that Meinzer had done the same two days before. And both had learned the same thing. The wild talents appeared, but they couldn't be controlled. Meinzer hadn't found the security in the hospital, hard as he'd tried to find it. He'd gotten up in the middle of the night and walked through the solid wall, unable to stop until he was back with the group. Hawks had tried another way to stop the wild abilities that operated without his conscious control. He prepared a new hypnotic tape, worded to make him forget everything he knew, or even the fact that he had worked on the psi factor. He'd put in commands that would make him avoid any reference to it, so that he couldn't learn accidentally. He ordered his brain to have nothing to do with it. Then he drugged himself with a combination of opioids and hypnotics that should have knocked out a horse. Then he'd telephoned Dan to have men pick him up in an hour, 
and keep him drugged. He'd turned on the tape recorder and stumbled back into the bed. He groaned as he remembered his failure. It's the ultimate, absolute alien, all right, the back of man's own mind. It's Freud's unconsciousness, or id. The psi factor is controlled by that and not by the conscious mind. And the id is a primitive beast. It operates on raw impulse, without reason or social consciousness. Every man's unconscious is back in the jungle, before civilization. And we've given that alien thing the greatest power that could exist when we wake up the psi power. Meinzer thought it was controlled for a while, Ellen said. He came when Dan and I called him. I went with him up to your apartment while Dan got the men to carry you away. But we couldn't reach you. Meinzer barely touched the tape recorder, then something seemed to pick us up and drive us out of the room and down the stairs. We were just going back when you came out. She shuddered, and Hawks nodded. He'd obviously used the psi factor to throw off the drugs at the first sign of anyone near him. He told them sickly what had happened to the old man. So I killed him, he finished bitterly. Dan shook his head. No, your psi factor works differently. You control heat and radiation. You can move yourself or any object in space for almost any distance. Instantly, if you want. And it seems you can do the same thing through time. But you can't disintegrate things, as Meinzer could. He had a suicide urge. We knew that before. When it got out of control again, he blew himself up, just as your dominant urge to protect yourself did all those things around you. Hawks grimaced. It wasn't pleasant to know that he'd been doing all the things he'd blamed on monsters. He'd somehow remembered that someone was supposed to come get him, and he'd run out of wild fear while his unconscious mind blasted the apartment with heat to destroy all traces. He'd blasted down the subway entrance with another bolt of energy to make his getaway. The poor cat had surprised him and had been killed. His unconsciousness gone wild had tossed Dan's car 200 feet to the roof of the garage. When it found him losing control emotionally with Ellen, it hadn't let his conscious brain give it the information it needed. It has simply thrown him completely off Earth, pulled air to him, and warmed the rocks. Then, when it found the moon unfit for life, it had thrown him back to his own world. It had tossed him two hours back in time this morning, and lifted him into the air while it pelted his enemies with rocks, and built a wall around him by throwing the bullets back instantly and it had somehow clung to the implanted idea that he must not find out about himself. It had destroyed anything where the written word might have given him a hint, and had even melted the telephone so that he couldn't continue listening to other evidence. It had probably done a thousand other things that he couldn't even remember, whenever its wild, reasonless fear had been aroused, and it decided that he had to be protected. You should have killed me, he told them but he knew they couldn't have done it. We had to let you sweat it out. You made us promise not to tell you anything, and we thought you might be right, Ellen told him. We thought that it might adjust after a while. All we did was try to pick you up, until we knew it was impossible. Until Sis tipped off the government men, Dan added. 
Hawks could imagine what their reaction had been to having a man with his power running wild. He was surprised that they had bothered to make even an attempt to see that he wasn't harmed. He shrugged helplessly. And where does it leave us now? Beyond this hole in the ground. The government's put about fifty specialists on the notes you and Meinzer left, Dan answered, but there was no assurance in his voice. They're trying to find some way to bring the psi factor under control of your logical, rational mind. He got to his knees and began crawling out of the little cave, while Hawks tried to help Ellen follow him. Outside, Dan knocked off the dirt from his clothes and headed for the sedan he'd somehow gotten off the roof. Hawks followed, for want of anything better to do. He knew the answers now, and he was worse off than ever. Instead of a horde of outside aliens, he had one single monster in his own skull, where he could never fight it, or even hope to escape it. The power had been meant as a hope for the world. A man who could work such seeming miracles could have ended the threat of war. He could have been the perfect spy, or better at attack than a hundred hydrogen bombs that had smashed whole cities to remove a few men and weapons. But now the world was better off without him. So long as he was still alive, there was nothing but danger from the alien monster in his head. He had no idea of his limits, but he was sure that it could trigger the energies of the universe to move the whole world out of its orbit if it seemed necessary for his personal survival. Chapter 8 Hawks leaned forward cautiously as the gray sedan moved up 10th Avenue. His finger found the gun in Dan's coat pocket, and he pulled it out stealthily. He knew that the only answer for him was suicide. He had to destroy himself, since no one else could. He propped it up, pointed it at his head, and his thumb pressed back on the trigger, further and further until he felt sure that the smallest change would set it off. Then he waited for a rough spot in the street, or a sudden stop at a light, that would do the trick before he could stop it. The car lurched, and the gun suddenly vanished, leaving his hand empty. His responses were too quick, and his mind wasn't waiting once it knew that there was danger. He slumped back on the rear seat, trying to think. Drugs were out, he knew his system would throw them off. But he couldn't remove himself. He lifted his wrist to his teeth and bit down savagely. If he could sever an artery. Pain shot through him and he stared down at the blood. Then the blood was gone, and the wound was closing before his eyes, until only smooth flesh remained. His mind could juggle the cells back into their original form. It would have to be sudden, complete death and no death was that sudden. For a fraction of a second, there'd be life left, and during that split second the damage would be repaired, or he would be shifted from danger. There was no way out, unless he could pull himself to another planet, or throw himself back into the dim past. But that would take voluntary control, and he knew now that hours of effort had shown him how impossible that was. He hadn't been able to lift a crumb of bread from the table deliberately in his original test after he had treated himself. 
he was faced with a problem that had to be solved, and there was no possible solution that he could find. No man could face that dilemma forever without going insane. Hawks shuddered, trying to picture what would happen if he went mad, and the wild talents began operating at every whim of his crazed mind. Ellen shouted suddenly, grabbing for the wheel. Hawks felt himself tense and began lifting from the seat of the car. But there was no visible danger, and Dan was slowing to a halt at the curb. Hawks' body dropped back slowly. Dan! Ellen was whispering hoarsely. Dan, we can't. If we take him back, they'll find him, and they'll know what he can do. They'll kill him. Eventually, they'll kill Will. Hawks started to protest, but Dan's words cut him short. You're right, sis. They'll wait their time, until he won't know when to expect it, and then they'll drop an H-bomb on him, if they have to. It's faster than any nerve impulse. He swung back to face Hawks, reaching for the door of the car. Get out, Will, and get as far away as you can. I'm not going to drive you to your death. They'll get you eventually, but I won't be the one to make it easier for them. Hawks jerked. The old fear came back suddenly. You can't escape. They'll find you. Run. Go. He screamed as the golden haze flickered again. He could wipe out the earth but he couldn't survive then. He could move back in time, but it would only mean other dangers. No man could stay awake forever, and he was used to civilized living. The haze hesitated while the sense of danger mounted. Then it was gone, as if the beast in his head had found no answer. Suddenly the gray sedan lifted again, to a height of fifty feet above the tallest building. It shot forward, hesitated, and came down softly on a deserted side road in Central Park. His mind felt as if it were going to split. Dan and Ellen stared at him speechlessly. You can't survive alone. No power is enough by itself. They'll get you. You are your own death sentence. Run. Don't run. Hawks put his hand to his splitting skull, trying to force words through the agonies of pain while slow understanding began to reach him. Dan, the scientists, get me there. Then his mind seemed to clamp down on itself, and he was unconscious. He could protect himself from almost anything, except his own brain. He was conscious of no pain, but only of irritation. There was a needle in his arm, and he removed it. He opened his eyes slowly to find himself in the center of a group of men, while a white-coated doctor stood staring at an empty hand that must have held a hypodermic. Ellen cried out suddenly and ran to him, cradling his head in her hands. He found her arm with his own hand and stroked it slowly. "'You found the answer?' he asked. Then he nodded, while the weight that had lain on him for so long began to lift. His voice was suddenly positive. You found it! One of the men pushed forward, but Dan shook his head and came over to stand beside the cot where Hawks lay. No, Will. They didn't find it. You did. You found what we should have known. Your unconscious mind may be a wild beast, but it isn't insane. 
when it was shocked into realizing that it couldn't save you by itself it looked for help from your consciousness and then it knocked you out knocked itself out until we could work on you i guessed it hawk said slowly but in that case a psychotic with his id out in the driver's seat should become normal when they lock him up or wait maybe his unconscious is a bit insane maybe but you still have to communicate with the unconscious part of the brain to make it understand that it has to surrender and all the psychiatrists have been driving themselves crazy trying to solve that touche an old man said there was a faint sound of amusement from some of the others but this psi factor is the means of communication you told us that yourself while you were undergoing our hastily improvised hypnotic education of your brain it always has been the minute a girl bothered with poltergeists finds she is the cause of them they stop it's a faint weak channel between the consciousness and the unconsciousness or subconsciousness if you prefer and yours was widened by the treatment even if it wasn't ready to work yet we simply used your own technique to improve the relationship all you ever needed was a longer harder treatment than you and Meinzer had given yourselves you just stopped too soon Hawks dropped back comfortably into the cot he reached out for a glass of water lifted it to his lips and put it back without using his hands he thought of his clothes and they were suddenly on him over the single white garment he had been wearing another thought took that away to leave him normally dressed whether they were entirely correct or not in their theories the psi factor was no longer wild he had it under full control he sat up just as three men entered the crowded room one wore the uniform of a four-star general but the familiar faces of the two civilians told hawks at once that they were more important than any general could be he was about to become officially the national arsenal and replacement for all the armies navies and air corps they had ever dreamed of having he'd also become their bridge into space their means of solving the secrets of the planets and probably their chief historical tool since nothing could ever be secret from him it was going to be a busy life for him and for others like him who would now be carefully selected and treated he grinned faintly as he realized that they didn't know yet just how important he was he wasn't going to be a national resource he'd be a world resource this power was too great for any local political use and no man who had it along with the full correlation of his conscious and subconscious mind could ever see it any other way but right now he had other pressing business he grinned at ellen you don't mind a small wedding do you he asked she shook her head and began to smile he reached for her hand this psi factor was going to be a handy thing to have around with its complete control of space and time I'm taking a two-week honeymoon before we talk business he told the approaching three men But don't go away. We'll be back in ten minutes Honolulu looked lovely in the moonlight and June was a perfect month for a wedding
The End of Pursuit by Lester Del Rey Hi, I'm Jesse. I am Paul. Hey, I'm Tony from the Gribcast. And we're going to talk about uh, Pursuit by Lester Del Rey. First published in Space Science Fiction, Volume 1, Number 1, May 1952. And uh, he was the editor of this magazine. Yeah, so I think that, I think that's why he got this story in this magazine. Yeah, um, I ever uh, his privilege. I've got um, his editorial here. Why don't I read that? Because I think it shows what he's trying to do. Okay, here we go. The first issue of a magazine is something like a new baby. Behind it lie months of worry and anticipation ahead lies a period of growth and development towards its own position in the world but even now while it may resemble others to some extent it is unique with its with a personality of its own its name must reflect that space science fiction seems the most appropriate name that a science fiction magazine can have could have from the very first appearance of stories dealing with science and the future space travel has been one of the most popular themes and it continues to grow in favor with every year we we like good science fiction and we intend to bring you the best of it nothing is more welcome than a good story of man's conquest of this final frontier the space opera of flashing ray guns and invincible heroes has long since been overdone but there are as many stories to be written of a man against space as there are worlds out, of, out there waiting for us. We'd like to explore every one of these possible worlds to meet every challenge that can arise in our efforts to spread throughout the universe. However, space isn't a title which restricts us to a monotonous diet of a single type of story. Webster's new call. This is always a bad sign. Webster's new collegiate dictionary defines space as that which is characterized by extension in all directions, boundlessness, and indefinite in, indefinite divisibility. This is a broad enough definition to cover all possible futures and ideas that man can invent. Time travel, robots, biological mutations, or social conflicts are only a few of the possible extensions in all directions that we want to follow. Uh, even as an occasional, even an occasional fantasy which deals with the some world of possibility beyond what we know now, uh, we now know or believe will become. Okay, we know. Okay, or <laughs> believe will be welcome. There we go. And there are still countless fine stories to be written about this planet and the near future. Our sole aim will be to bring you a variety, a varied selection of first-rate fiction, and our only taboo will be against dullness. We don't want, we don't intend to make claims that this is or will be the best, the best science fiction magazine. That's a matter of taste, and every magazine will be "quote unquote" best to some group or of readers. We don't intend to claim it is the most mature magazine either until we find a better definition for maturity. We do intend to make <laughs> this the best magazine our honest efforts can give you and to make sure that it lives up to the purpose of all good fiction, suspenseful, stimulating entertainment. Inevitably, a first issue can never do everything that we want the magazine to do. It will take the help of the readers to guide us for uh, towards the ideal we have in mind. We want you. We want your suggestions and your objections. We need your praise. We have, when we have earned it, and will 
expect your criticism when it is merited. Science fiction has always been a cooperative concern, and we hope it always will be. This applies to everything. The stories, the writers, the Just artists, yeah, covers, formats, including your opinion of this editorial and the editor, if you like. We also want to know what features you'd like to see at present. We're planning to run a letter section for those who write in. We need your letters for that, though we want to hear from you, even if you ask us not to print your letter. We'll have reviews of the best books of, sorry, the best of the new books and some of the old. I'm, so, I'm sorry, guys. I'll be, I'm, I'll be back in a few minutes. All right. We'll have reviews of the best of the new books and some of the old that deserve special mention. We expect to bring you news of stories to come and the results on the stories that have appeared. We plan to use occasional articles, but only when they are of special interest to the science fiction readers rather than as a regular feature. And we're planning to keep our future editorials devoted to those aspects of science fiction which we feel have been neglected instead of simply boosting our own stock. But you know better than that, than we what you like, and we want to learn exactly what that is. Let's hear from you, Lester Del Rey. And then on the very next page is the art for Pursuit. Pursuit. By Lester Del Rey. So this is... Man running on over a planet and then... That's, a that's the moon. That's the, the moon? moon, yeah. And then the next page is the Earth. On uh, the lady on the air. Oh, that, that's it. That one's obviously the yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, it's our hero, right? So, uh, this is a bit of an unusual situation because most of the time editors don't, uh, have the first and main story in a magazine that they are producing. They, you know, editors hi- hired and sometimes they're writers and sometimes they're not. Uh, usually they're writers, but, um, I think uh, this story is kind of a product of this magazine and the idea of, of what he's trying to do. So he, for almost no reason has our hero go to the moon in this story. And I think the reason can be explained by uh, he's got a magazine called Space. Uh, I'm back, guys. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. Uh, unfortunately, I guess that means I missed some of that editorial you were reading. But. The wonderful and thoughtful editorial uh, by Lester Del Rey. Uh, what, what was he? When was he editing? Is I have an issue of Space Science Fiction. It's fifty fifty two is when this came out in May. Okay, the issue that I have is from fifty seven, and uh, yeah, it didn't I don't run think that Lester long. Del Rey worked on this one. Um, it, he, it might not be the same magazine then. Uh, well, is it space science fiction? Because it only ran for two years. It says space science fiction magazine, August 1957. Okay. <laughs> so maybe there's more I actually tweeted space. about it not too long ago. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, it might not tech, but this says volume one, number two. So I think it's technically a different magazine. I guess. Um, who's the editor? Someone I'm not familiar with. Um, Lyle Kenyon Engel is editorial director. Sounds like a fake name. Uh, Could be. Is editorial director, maybe it's a reprint mag. Um, I think it is a reprint mag. Well, that would explain it, yeah. Republic Features Syndicate. Yeah, it's probably a reprint mag. Um, There's a lot of them. Um, 
spot. Yeah, a lot of the ones that I got recently are reprint mags. Not all of them, though. They still have good stories in them. It's just a matter of uh, they're not the first publication. So long story short on that editorial, he's trying to cover his bases, and he's going to give an idea what the magazine's going to be about. But as a showcase for this magazine, he is uh, doing an okay job, I guess, of giving possibilities. Um, one thing that's not in the audiobook that is in the uh, in the original magazine publication is a little editorial um, at the end of the story. Just like at the beginning of the story, we have an editorial. We have one at the end of the story here, and it says something a little little bit interesting about. Yeah, I'm gonna read can, it. Yeah, I'm gonna read it. Editorial right, note. Editorial note. Actually, pursuit ends where the real story is just beginning. Disregarding other powers when men can move instantly over any distance by simple desire is the beginning of a life and culture totally unrelated to anything we know. What will it be like? Where should houses be built? And where will they be built? A housewife can have her dining room in the mountains and her kitchen in the community to simplify achieving plumbing 10,000 miles away or another planet. There can be no national boundaries, of course. What happens to the multiplicity of languages? What happens to government? How do you catch a criminal? How do you hold them? There are endless possibilities, naturally. We're tossing it open to the readers. You tell us what that world will be like, if you can. We'll print the best letters, and if the authors want to use this background, we'll buy the best stories based on it. We will not be met responsible for mental breakdowns, however. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so he's licensing <laughs> this story idea. Uh, it sounds like only to the writers of this magazine. Mm-hmm. But um, this story idea is not—it's uh, not super unique, although it—it it, um, it does it fairly uniquely. This, um, the, there's um, um, what's his name? The Stars My Destination. Yes, and that's fifty-four. The Stars My Destination. So it's a couple years later. Yeah, it, it basically is the apotheosis of this time of that of this idea. Um, with technology, you can think, of course, the Larry Niven um, teleportation stories, where where culture has definitely been altered by the fact that teleportation is cheap mean like, and easy. Um, the b- booths, right? The booths, yes. Stepping discs and stepping. Well, yeah. Well, the stepping discs are from uh, yeah. It's ring, the, ring no, it's worlds, the same but, universe. But, but he's just, got a whole set of stories. The story. same tech. Niven's got a whole yeah. Niven's got a whole set of stories where people have booths, and so. How do you solve murders when you can have an alibi? Mm-hmm. Or there are no alibis because you could just boot from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And those those are really fascinating stories that explore that idea. Um, as far as having the dining room in the mountains and the kitchen somewhere else, that makes me think of um, Dan Simmons' Hyperion, where you basically have houses which are basically rooms set on different planets that you step between mm-hmm. portals to go from one room to the that's other. That's quite so late, have, though, right? Dan Simmons is that, that's, that's 80s, the lady. maybe? Yeah. Right. So, so, so the idea has been explored and, frankly, much better than uh, here that, you know... The, yeah, the, if we're comparing the, the Demolished Man... Uh, oh, sorry. Stars My Destination to Stars this. Stars My Destination. Demolished I prefer I prefer Alfred Bester's take than Lester Del Rey's. Um, <laughs> I still need to read that one. I've read Demolished Man, but I haven't read. They're both stars really yet. good. Yeah, um, there is a, a another one that sort of deals with this actual idea that he's saying in the end here. Um, it's called Living Space. It's by Isaac Asimov. It's from 1956, 
Is, isn't that the one where people have one house on a planet? That's or right. Parallel Earth. Yes, I remember that one. So you could you could have you live in the suburbs of uh, of a giant city by having a gate that allows you to go to your, uh, have a your house on your own planet. personal planet. Yeah. That's not the focus of the story. Um, it's it's the development of these alternate universe, pocket universes. I guess they're not pockets. They're just they're alternate not, universes. They're, they're not pockets. They're just alternate universes. Pocket universes. That's um, that's a, there's a whole bunch of writers that do mm-hmm. that. I'm thinking particularly of Philip S. A. Farmer's World of Tears novels. But if you're if you're transferring, you know, like from your job in an office and then you commute home to an alternate dimension. That's pretty cool. And it, there's talk about having uh, that in, I believe in living space where people have like the living room on a mountainside and um, you know, uh, the, the bathroom uh, <laughs> on the beach or whatever of different planets, uh, of different versions of earth. And any you know, right. a totally uninhabited planets other than your one house. Um, so th- he's. This is sort of the thing I like about Lester Del Rey is he is an uh, ideas guy. He's not very excellent at executing him, but he really is enthusiastic for ideas. So this story is very fast paced um, and has a lot of what's what's going on what's happening and there's a lot of pursuing <laughs> chase would there, be another there is a, name for this there's story. a lot of pursuing in this now but it's we it's only about three quarters of the way through the book that we don't have any idea what's going on yes it, it, it's 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 deliberate it's deliberately um obfuscatory as to what's going on who's the actual threat and what can our protagonist do about because he's basically hunted Hunted up continuously, basically to keep the pressure on the re- on him and on the readers. <laughs> on the reader, yeah. Well, yeah, because they, yeah, because you're not given a chance to actually think about things too much. No, um, but and that's, and that's it's, why it's the, all the, red herring in a certain sense, right? It is it all red herring. It is very much red herring in a certain sense. Well, you know, to be to be honest, the story actually even kind of reminded me of like um, Philip K. Dick a little bit because mm-hmm. he does, you that know, too. a lot of it. You know, a lot of it's just like his sense of reality is out of whack, and yeah, I thought he was mentally ill. His own head, and <laughs> well, I yeah, and the story plays with that. It's like, mm-hmm. is he really mentally ill? Is it? Is he? I, and I mean, because there's a couple that I kept thinking, like Total Recall. Okay, so this is really going on. And he's really just crazy, and he's got to become insane now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. So it's a, it, it it is very those aren't, uh, those aren't the best part of Philip K. Dick though he does that like a there's a few stories where especially in his l- sort of novelette length where he he has the man on the run uh, and that's like the least good Philip K. Dick stories I much prefer his his short and painful tales to those this is it's fine it's acceptable and if you you know gave me a list of five science fiction authors who could have written this and Lester Del Rey was on there, I would have picked him. I, I don't know, you know, as long as I know the other authors as a mom. Yeah, it's, just, it's just like I, I can think of other authors that could do this better than uh, Lester Del Rey be that, that might be That might be a, a fun game. We get a, a anonymize a story and uh, see <laughs> see if you can pick. I give you the But I think a lot of that would be uh, I shouldn't say the... Um, 
rather influenced by what the what the reader knows as authors. So yes, they might, they it, might, it's so a, if they'll know Wesley Lurie, they'll never pick him. Well, so it would have to be someone like you, Paul, somebody who's read a lot. Um, yeah. I know I know what you've read, but I also have to find something that you haven't read previously, which is a bit tricky. But I could do that based on the short, sto- you know, short stories because there's a lot of short stories out there. And I pick somebody who you have read, and I say it's one of these five authors. Which author is it? You make your case, and then we, you know, it's like a game show where we re- reveal the author's name. Uh, it, it, it's funny. This is a side note to our podcast, but occasionally Sean Duke, who you know does streaming on Twitch and one of the things we've sometimes done is he he'll start reading beginnings of books and ah. make me guess the book. Mhm. It's a uh, well, I don't know about guess the book, but guess the author would be well, well, possible. Well, he doesn't tell me he didn't tell me the author. Yeah, it's like, yeah it's but like you know, if it's a book you've read before, that's that's Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah but I got to be able to come come out of my the brain. The Sky Above so, the yeah. Port was a you know, tune to Right. Oh, yeah, right, but you know, yeah, it's so, well, that one's easy, but he's, but you he's have to know what the guy's read, right? Which is tricky. Yeah, and I've read a lot, so. But short stories, you're you know you're not. Uh, and there's just so much of many more. Yes, so, yeah, and stories, but it has so. to be an author who wrote a lot, and uh, so it, it's kind of not a, a realistic game to have. But I could feel like, oh, this is a Lester Del Rayism sort of here. Uh, the relationships, the the weird. Uh, I, I like some of the language he uses. He uses the word words "wild talents." That is, uh, I believe, like a whole thing later on, right? Isn't that George R. R. Martin's? Uh, you you think of the wild cards, yes? Wild cards, right? But I think "wild talents" is also a series. Um, it's a parable of the talents. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> not that's, that well, that's a different wild thing. But no, talents. but um, wild talents. Kind, I don't know if it's, it's a, a role playing game. Means, yeah. Uh, it, um, Wild Towns makes me think of stuff like um, The Many Colored Land by Julian May, for example. Uh, that has, I think that they're that's less a, wild. They're very uh, cut and dried because there, there's a certain set of talents and you just have a force. But, right, but yeah, but yeah, but but she breaks it immediately because she has characters who don't fit those molds. So. A little bit. Um, but the, the rules there are pretty. Uh, pretty cool, and that's what makes that a pretty good book. This Wild Talents computer—it's uh, not a computer game; it's a uh, role-playing game—is a superhero role-playing game. And oh, if, if you've played yeah. any like Marvel superhero RPG, or uh, there's probably a DC one. There was another one, um, uh, Villains and Vigilantes, that was pretty early. Um, I remember, yeah, yeah. Um, rolling up characters and getting like random powers and trying to make a character out of it is is kind of interesting. Um, doing that with uh, Marvel characters, you could do the the uh, mutant powers and you know come up with some interesting combinations of powers or lack of powers it makes it interesting to try and figure out how characters interact. Like um, what uh, Captain America is. He's he's not he doesn't actually have any superpowers. He's just a maximized human. Is the idea right? Fast well, stuff. Well, yes and no. It depends on. Depends and he's on, got a uh, shield, right? Yeah, he, he's he's got a, he's got a, he's got a high tech shield, and he's not afraid to use it. And uh, he's got moral goodness, if that's a superpower. Um, um. Well, I mean, I mean the the 
the super, I mean, some versions of Captain America, the super serum turned him into a hero because he is morally good and turned the Red Skull into a villain because he's bad. Right. And he I can, mean, that, he that's can expl- lift Molnir or whatever, right? Yeah. But I'm just thinking of, of, uh, the way this story turns into a superhero story after a certain point, I which like, I was not expecting. No, I wasn't I was, either. I, I, I was, was like, not, "What? Was not, it's a superhero yeah. story?" Okay. I mean, to be honest, the the twists and turns and and almost random things that happen in this kind of made kind of remind me of like a good. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this term before, mind fuck movie. Uh, yeah, like what, uh, you what know, movie if well, it's like well, you Vanilla know, like Sky? Just, just, yeah, Vanilla Sky would be a great example. Okay. Yeah, or um, the original Open Your Eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the, that's or, a great or movie. the original Total Recall. Mm. It, Total Recall, it does too, yeah. Yeah, it's got um, the chase a, element for sure. Yeah, if they adapted, they could easily, I think this story could easily be adapted into like a good kind of mindfuck movie, but they'd just have to make it weirder and maybe uh, less straightforward ending or something, but. <laughs> I still yeah. thought it was fun. I, I still thought it was fun for that. I probably enjoyed this more than, um, and uh, the most of all the Lester Del Rey we read, read for the podcast. Really? Because I I, th- I thought this was sort of the weakest. Um, I thought I thought it was actually. I think it's fun. fun and it held my attention. And the best. It, it definitely it, mostly held it my attention. Doesn't have as many ideas. No, though. it's yeah, very it, short it, on it, ideas. Yeah, and remember, Jesse is all about ideas. Ideas yeah. with a capital yeah. I. At least this is short. It's only two hours, right? Yeah. So I yeah, mean, maybe just the pacing was better. The pacing for me is good, and the I, narrator did a good job with it. But there's some weirdness in it as well that, um, like I think it's art so artificial, and I thought I I asked myself did. He know where the story was going when he started. I think he did. Um, that kind of makes it worse. I, 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 know, I know you like to play. I know you like to play that game. Like, are you are you reading by writing by the seat of your pants, or do you have a plot and plan think, to begin with? I think he had a. I think he had to have had a plot and a plan because I think he knew he was going to publish it, this for this magazine to try and and that's why that moon sequence is in there for no reason. Um, he had the idea. This is a very John Campbell idea, right? Psy powers. Um, and I'm like, I don't think Psy powers are very interesting. I don't think they're very realistic. Uh, and we don't find out that that's what it is until quite late. Um, I thought he, he did seed it well enough so that we're, so we can see it. It's right in the beginning, the unconscious part, and then the stuff about the poltergeists. So he, he's playing fair-ish. Uh, and that's why it makes me think he absolutely didn't write it by the seat of his pants exactly. But his style is such that it, it's pretty... Like, I don't think he went over it many times to fix it. I think he wrote it and said, that's good, done, ready, next. Um, so I guess the part that's uh, kind of threw me a little bit was when he meets the girl. Because I was like, okay, what is she doing? What's going on? And I think a lot of it can be explained by um, uh, horniness. <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, he's, a young, he's a young guy. It's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's kind of. Some of that was a little, uh, some of that was a little uncomfortable to read. <laughs> yeah. It's, or have it's read a to little, you. It, it's a little dated these days. Yeah. 
I mean, but we, but the last Lester Del Rey story we read had the same thing. Uh, which uh, remind me because I'm forgetting. Um, I don't. What was the actual story? Because I just remembered it was there was definitely a horny guy involved. Um, definitely horny guys around. <laughs> Are you talking about the the sky is falling? The sky is falling. Well, yes, the there last one? Yeah, that was the last one we did. That yeah, one was, was much more idea based. I think Sky is Falling is the first. Oh no, Badge of Infamy. Badge of Infamy. Badge of Infamy is the last one, and Sky is Falling we did before that. Yeah, so, yeah, so so yeah, so they they, they both. I mean, um, to, to 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 use the use ancient parlance, um, Lester of the Right has a lot of horn dogs in his stories. Apparently, yeah, I didn't I didn't recognize that before before we started doing these stories, but apparently that is you know a, a feature of his stories. It is kind of it was kind of uncomfortable, as Tony said. So. So let me just read this section and see if we can find out where it gets weird. He lurched into the bedroom while she let out another gurgling cry as the light showed him in the doorway. She came out of the bed, leaping for him, crying his name, cold sober, but he wanted none of her act. He shook her off. You damned alien, you filthy monster disguised as a girl. When you get in the spot where I'm sure to find you, you will, you have a cute trick up your sleeve, but it won't work. You can send me back there, back to the rest of your kind from wherever they came, but you won't fool me into thinking you're human again. You can't pass one test. He wouldn't be fooled into thinking it was a dream, either. He'd been physically on the moon. The very dust on his feet proved that. They might drive him insane, but they wouldn't do it that way. (laughs) She was crying now, gasping out words that only that he only half heard. I'm human, Will. Oh, I'm human. Then prove it. Come here and prove it. She cried again (laughs) at that as he pulled her down with him. But slowly her crying quieted. He awoke slowly with sunlight streaming in the windows and reached for her. He owed her more apologies than one, though he he wasn't too sorry about most of it. She had proven herself, and virginally so. Her complete surrender still left something warm inside him, where only the madness and the fear had been before. Then he jerked upright and found her gone. He cursed himself for a fool and listened for a stir and a bustle in the kitchen. But there was none. I wonder what she She went off to the FBI. (laughs) She ran off to the FBI. Um, The word virgin comes up again later on, right? They'd been smart picking a virgin for the job. It's like, what is going on with this? Uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, s- simple? It's so simplistic and I don't know. I guess that's kind of why I like Lester Del Rey. Is like, he's like, I like this idea. And then he runs with it and he's not great at it. But he's he's but, but, but he, he likes the right ideas. It, yeah, yeah. You, I see why you're... Uh... You're a fan of his work, even if the characters are. Yeah, and his writing isn't beautiful, right? It, it's fine. It's serviceable. But this, this is. It turns out to be. Yeah, it's a. Su- it's basically a superhero story. So I was thinking, like, oh, this is kind of like what a show like The Boys does, or you know, the comic book does. When you have Superman, uh, what would it really be like? He would be wild and um, untamable, and people would want to kill him because he's a monster and accidents happen right um so he would be killing people and people would not like it and they can't get revenge um how could you know 
it, it's it's kind of like we're we all become Lex Luthor. We all want to defeat Superman, um, and that's I guess the idea behind you know uh, it is the idea behind the boys and uh, the hate for superheroes. Um, I think where he ends this saying, you know, you anybody can use this idea. I think the reason they don't is because he exhausted the whole like the story ends because it oh it opens up a reality that's ridiculous and impossible right like it, where he says we should build yeah. houses uh you know with the wife it has her dining room in the mountains and the kitchen in in the community to s- simplify and cheapen plumbing like if you can do this you can you can you don't need to have plumbing if you can bring water uh, instantly from anywhere on the earth, right? Or you, or you can reorganize your cells after you bite your wrist. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you, you just just for a little pain, you can go wherever you want. Yeah, so you can, uh, you can, you can jaunt to use the. Um, to use the uh, the term from uh, Sarkman. Yeah, yeah. John, see, that power is limited. That's the only power he has. And that's why it works as a better revenge story. This uh, also reminded yeah, me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, ba- ba- basically, the Stars My Destination, I know I'm turning this to the Stars My Destination podcast, is basically the Count of Monte Cristo with teleportation. Yes. But uh, similar characters like um, Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen. Right, mm-hmm. he he's capable of reorganizing matter at you know uh, on any level, and the ability to know everything and go back in time and under like that's what literally he can do. He can do everything, right? This guy, um, he's not just going to be the armed forces. He's going to be the intelligence agencies. He's going to be everything. And then what do they do? They go to Hawaii for a three week honeymoon. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Where are you going to go now? You're I'm done, bud. The story's finished. That's right. Honolulu. I mean, granted, I've never been to Hawaii. I would like to go. Right now, as as we're recording this podcast, listeners, um, Mauna Kea is erupting. And lots of people are going there to see the eruption. I would not go near a, 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 an erupting volcano. Not because it wouldn't be a photographic uh, wonderland. It would be. But my sulfur... Uh, my sulfur allergy would not like it at all. Is there a lot of sulfur involved? There's lots of sulfur involved in volcanic uh, processes. Yeah, but I'm not sure uh, the Hawaiian ones are full of. Oh, well, uh, there's yeah, a little I bit mean, of sulfur I, dioxide, but there's not like I, uh, I mean, you, piles you, you, like in Stromboli no, no, or something. No, no, no. But but you, you get sulfur whenever you have volcanic activity in bit. the air. Yeah, and uh, but I'm sensitive to it. When I when I went to Yellowstone and I went to uh, Yellowstone is a good yeah. Museum. New Zealand, yeah. When I went to the volcanic areas, it's like, yeah, the the, the sulfur makes me. I don't think the poi poi's is is uh, the poi poi vo- volcanism is, is sulfur intensive. You might be able to. Handle Maybe it. I don't know, but I'd like to go to Hawaii for other reasons. I mean, I'd like to see the volcano, but mm-hmm. maybe when it's not erupting. Thank you. So although although there's a funny bit, you know about the, uh, you you know what a planet walk is, right? Jesse, uh, tell me. It's a scale model of the solar system. Okay. There's one. In, there's a couple around the world. There's one in Ithaca, New York, because mm-hmm. oh, Paul okay. Sagan gets the tape. Yeah, yeah. And so they have uh, the sun to Pluto in Ithaca. They built a new one for Alpha Centauri and stuck it on Hawaii. Stuck it in Hawaii at a mm-hmm. university. So it's so, officially part of this 
planet walk. It's a long I'd like walk. To, well, yes, I've done the one in Ithaca. I'd like to go to Hawaii and see the get finish the set now. Now that they've finished it, but you know, goals. Now then, next they'll have to do Barnard Star, which probably would have to be New Zealand or Australia or something. Are they are they going on the surface of the Earth? Or are they going through the surface of the Earth when measuring? Um, they're measuring along the surface of the Earth. Always, oh, not through okay. the surface. All right. So there's a limit of fourteen thousand. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, twelve thousand miles. It would make more sense to have it like in Europe, uh, going to you know, Asia. Yeah, but but there's no but because there's then no you place could literally in, walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, there there's one in like Sweden, I think. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of these things around. So yeah, pleasant walks. That's the tweet. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so going back to the story, it's just like it, it feels like it's yeah, the lack of limits kind of kills the kills the idea in the end. Like if you can do anything, you can't. If, if everybody's super, then nobody's super. To quote a certain movie, his problem is you know it's unconscious, right? He can't control it consciously. And I think that's interesting, um, and that's kind of like uh, another Philip K. Dick. Um, gold, the Golden Man, where we've got basically mm-hmm. uh, an X-Men style mutant who is uh, incredibly powerful and able to avoid death and capture, but um, is basically a mental midget and incapable of even speech, right? So it's like a funny situation where somebody's incredibly powerful but also incredibly impotent. Um, he wants to kill himself. He, you know, he can't do it. He all, it's all instinctual. And then he gets this uh, uh, upgrade, I guess, or gets mentally past that point, and now he can control it. And the generals walk in with two important people, and, and now I'm going to be your Navy, arm, air, armed Armory, and Air Force, and also your intelligence AG, agency, and I can go anywhere in time and space. It's like, that's terrible. <laughs> It's like yeah, the, he, the end of storytelling and the end of the story. It has to be because um, it's it's like where uh, he doesn't do good work. This is where Ted, Ted Chang does good work, right? With a story like Understand. Yeah, yeah. Ted, Ted, Ted Chang would definitely do much better with this premise. And he does. Uh, it's a better story and it's kind of similar, except it, it doesn't start exactly the same way. It starts in a similar way. With a guy, um, I think there's also a Verna Vinci story. I want to say that also goes, I believe, goes here. I believe Bookworm uh, Run. Yes, Bookworm Run. Is understand starts with a guy having been plunged into water and he lost, got brain damage because of yep. uh, being ex- hypo- anoxia, anoxia, and then um, they give him drugs and then it turns into a uh, uh, Charlie. What's the name of that story? Oh, 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 you mean um, um, Flowers for Algernon? That's the one. Flowers for Algernon story. But it, it it keeps going up rather than descending later. Um, so many others have done it much better. But this is the thing that I think about Lester Del Rey is he does it first. Right? He, he did, um, he did, uh, uh, Helen O'Loy, way before everybody else is doing robot ladies. Right. He did um, uh, 
the faithful which is way you know other than other than hg wells uh uplift he's the first uplift guy right david brin's whole writing career uh, not all of it because he did a couple other things but you know that whole sundiver series is you know um yeah have that. you read brian magill's people Mm-mm. oh that's a that's a that I don't know if there's a audio version of that. But I'm that's not a David Brin. I, did, I didn't catch the name of that one. For I am a jealous people. That's okay. probably my favorite Lester Del Rey story. Oh, oh I I was worried it was um uh, by Brin because I'm not a Brin guy. No, 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 no. It's not. I haven't guy. read anything by Brin yet. I've got like the first couple of. Uh, I don't know if there's an I've audio version of, of it. Maybe there is. I don't know. Uh, I would say spend your time on other things because uh, he, he's he's okay, but his his um, self impression is very um, strong. <laughs> for yeah, I am a jealous people. For I am a jealous people. Is I'm pretty there sure there's. Pretty sure there isn't. Um, let's have a look. It was, it's 1954. Oh, I can check into its status. Um, oh, it's in a star short novel. Okay. That is possibly a good sign. Um, what's the length on it? It is a novella. I don't think I've read this one. It's not even listing anything. Is there a Wikipedia entry for it? Do you remember it? Um, let's find out. Um, Doesn't look like there's a. For I am a jealous people. Hmm. There are an awful lot of SF stories about religion out there, and any individual person's ability to read them all is improbable. The occasional story has slipped through the cracks of my reading list, but as one reviewer recently pointed out, I really, really ought to look into Lester Del Rey's For I Am a Jealous People, originally published in 1954. So I did. And then there's a review. So this is probably not available as an audiobook, but I will check the uh, copyright and see what's going on with it. So what who you you've been into uh, science fiction for a while. Who me? Tony. Uh, oh, Tony. But uh you got these pulp magazines, uh somebody gave them to you and you've been reading them. Who who's uh standing out to you as a good writer? Oh, well, I have I haven't really been reading too much out of them. Actually, I've been kind of busy. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get myself reading. I'm still trying to get myself reading more. Um, the only story I read out of one of them was um, oh, trying to remember the name of it. Um, I mean, I could go and actually um, find the issue. I know it was a Thomas M. Dish story. Mm. Uh, Somebody was, I haven't read much of. Yeah, and it was um, more of kind of a n- new wave mm, kind of style writing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's more new wavy. Um, yeah, and uh, this story it was kind of like it, it was it was pretty interesting, but it, it basically it basically the plot of it is this 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 you know not this um, physically deformed guy basically wants to use time travel to get laid. <laughs> I mean, why? Why? If you want to have sex with dinosaurs, and, you're going to have to. <laughs> well, it doesn't involve that, but uh, I mean that's basically what it's about. I actually kind of think of it. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but I thought in the end I thought of it as kind of a new wave take on uh, Heinlein's "All You Zombies." 
Oh, well, he goes back and has sex with a lady named Eve. <laughs> the end. The end. Or the beginning. I don't well, think the beginning. Eve is mentioned, but... <laughs> so I, I do not find a renewal, so it is public domain. Um, the only thing that is uh, renewed is there was a stage play adaptation of it, Paul, with John Jakes oh. as the adapter. Oh, that's interesting. It is interesting, because... I'm, I don't see that many science fiction stage plays, you know? No, it's not common at all. No, and it should be because, you know. I, I was saying um, when we did that uh, show on um, the cold equations, it would, you know, I've, I've seen it as a stage play as well, but it's, you know, just two people in a room, right? And a radio voice on the radio. So it's designed to be a play, really. You know, uh, Jesse, you're, um, one of your comments you made a minute ago reminded me of um, something. Uh, uh, you're, you're familiar with uh, Strange Horizons um, magazine? magazine and yeah. podcast, right? Mm-hmm. I remember a long time ago I was looking at on their website, and they have a section where they talk about, like, different stories and uh, uh, d- story ideas and cliches that, mm-hmm. you know, they would not accept. Okay. You know? And one of them was any story that e- that ends with the twist that the main characters are Adam and or Eve. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's so fun, and everybody wants to do their version of it. So everybody needs to get out of their system, right? Maybe you shouldn't submit that one as your first story. <laughs> I even know of at least one anime that ha- ends kind of like that. It's it, it's anything that's very iconic, right? Anything that's in the public consciousness has to have uh, its analog, right? And there's nothing really more iconic in the West than the Bible. And of those stories in there, uh, you know, I think Behold the Man's a uh, more original take <laughs> than um, than uh, I, I went back in time and found a lady whose name is Eve. Um, <laughs> do you know Behold the Man, uh, Michael Moorcock story? It's mm-hmm. Moorcock, right? Yeah, actually, that's yeah. I read that um, not too long ago. Actually, it's a great idea, right? And I don't think a lot of people are doing it because he did such a good job with it. Nobody needs to write it again. I, I was surprised by how sad the book was, but not in a bad way. I thought that was actually one of the one of the things about the book that I thought helped make it unique. Mm-hmm. And it's not super long. I think it's like. Novel yeah. at length or something. My, it's, it's over a hundred pages, but uh, I got like a book copy that's. I think just yeah, a maybe a copy dub, of it, but it's not too double. long. Maybe. No, maybe. it's on its own. It's like a little trade. Mm. Um, of just behold the man on it on its own. The man. Uh, maybe and there's it's, more I, than I it, one version. There might be an extended oh, the, the, version. Yeah. There probably is. I think mine's like 120, 130 pages yeah, or something. There's a maybe. short fiction version from 66 and a novel length version from 69. I, bu- I believe the, um, yeah, I read the novel length version, although it's still not too long. Yeah. And I think, I think the original is just one chunk of it. Probably. But I'm not sure. It's mm-hmm. funny. Um, th- this is something you see in. In the film industry, too, is like I was looking uh, for show notes for another episode. Uh, the movie Saw was originally a short film, and then the next year they just made it a full length feature, right? 
short films are what you do when you can't uh, get funding for a, a, a feature film. And you can get funding for a feature film by, uh, by writing and directing and shooting a short film. And then it said, just do this, but longer so we can make some money. And that's kind of, you know, where the industry it was. I don't think it still is that way. Because um, now you, you have to do series stuff. But it, it is, uh, you know, uh, a kind of a problem because the Saw series is, what, five episodes long or something? I don't know. And and what's funny is that whole I think it's more now. Yeah, probably. But that whole um show, that whole series, the whole premise, um, is just like one tiny part of another movie. That's the end of Mad Max, where he gives the kid uh saw and says you can cut your leg off before this bomb goes off. Uh, you know. You can't cut through the handcuffs, but you can cut right. It's like the, the entire premise for size or a r- tiny little rip off of one little scene in Mad Max that, you know, you would normally forget. But that's uh, what's so cool about mining these old uh, things is you see, yeah, like the Velt is the holodeck. And because it's not set on a spaceship and there's no Mr. Data in there and they're not in the Wild West, you kind of forget that, oh, yeah, it's actually the same story, isn't it? It's just used differently. But it has the same problems, and and that so that's kind of what science fiction really is. It's it's not really about predicting futures. It's it is as if we have a technology. What would that mean? And that's what science fiction is. So it's not that we predicted uh, flat screen televisions. What we didn't predict, uh, you know, the, the technology was in science fiction. What they do is they say. Um, if we have this flat screen technology, you'll be able to take it with you, right? You'll have it in your pocket. Or if you have, uh, like one of the things that we kind of missed with flat screen technology is that kids stay up too late uh, looking at phones and it keeps their light in their eyes and they can't go to sleep. That's not a in a science fiction story, but that's actually the sort of thing that... Yeah, that's would the make social consequence. Yeah, the social consequence. That's we the didn't s- real job of science fiction is saying what is the social consequence of a technology, and it's not predicting technology ever. Well, that, that that's the real job of a certain band of science fiction that has good wax stuff. and wane. Well, the good stuff for you, uh, which is not necessarily well, uh, to me. That's which like, is not necessarily the only science fiction there is, or the only science fiction there should be, or the only science fiction that could be. But that that, that goes that's right the, back. That's the stuff that you want. But that goes and right look, back not, to the editorial that he starts this thing with, which is saying, "We're not going to be the. We want to do the best, but what is the best really? Best for us, right? So the thing is, is there are better stories than other stories." And you say, well, not objectively. And I think, no, there are, they really are, right? Like, that's why when you are going through your revisions of a story and you mm-hmm. fix a typo, we think that that's a good thing, generally. Um, and, you know, like, if you forget, a, if you have a missing page in your story and you've, like, lost it, that doesn't generally improve the story. It's possible that it does, but generally doesn't. And so uh, to say, you know... Th- there are no objective standards is to kind of like say, wait, wait a second. What do we really mean? If, if this is a Western and there's no horses, uh, that's probably a strike against it. It might not be. Maybe, you know, the guy's carrying a saddle through the whole story. That'd be kind of fun. Right. But, um, if, you know, 
There's no ranges. <laughs> there's no horses. There's no hats. Um, maybe we're not doing a Western. And sometimes we'll say, oh, it's a space Western or something like that, right? But I don't know. I think there. I think it, 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 we can sweep too much under the idea of what's best for you when it's like just there are things that are better, right? Like we, if we take three people filming the same script and we watch all three films, one could be better than the other. And not just for two people, but for a lot of people. It's just hard to judge. I'll read that again. Our sole aim yeah. will be to bring you a varied selection of first-rate fiction, and our only taboo will be against dullness. We don't intend to make claims that this is or will be the best science fiction magazine. That's a matter of taste, and every magazine will be, quote-unquote, best to some group of readers. See, I don't think that that's true. I think that Strange Tales is not as good as, or Strange Stories is not as good as Weird Tales, even though they're the same kind of magazine. Which is better, astounding or amazing? I think we could make an argument that one was better than the other. It reminds me of people arguing over the Adams family and the monsters. There, there's a really good example, right? <laughs> um, I don't like either myself. I think they're okay. But I'm an Adams family man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a, uh, definitely an aesthetic, right? Monsters is sort of clunkier and less cool, a little goofier. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you like goofy, Although some Adams family stuff is kind of goofy. It depends <laughs> on what you look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like the, they're all vampires in the Adams family, right? It feels uh, like that. I suppose so. They're, they're, they're not, not literally. They're course, not, but, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're all goths. Whereas, yeah. uh, you know, the father in the monsters is, he's an actual monster. Yeah, he's, he's a Frankensteinian monster, and then there's one of the kids is a werewolf or something, right? Like, right. And the grandpa actually is a, an actual vampire, vampire. right? Exactly. Yeah. And the wife, I guess, so, is supposed to be a vampire as well, right? Yes. What What are the kids? Uh, um, vampire. One, one's a, a vampire. One's a werewolf. vampire, and uh, what, but but Marilyn's normal. Oh right, right. Forgot about her. She, she's <laughs> everyone does, and she's not adopted, right? <laughs> As far as we know, I don't think so. But yeah, she's I, never. I, I know the Adams family better. If, if she's adopted, then nobody says anything ever about it. See that that actually might be uh, a fun idea, um, but it is also sort of been done. The uh, graveyard book is a kid who's adopted by a graveyard, right? Uh, just like the Jungle Book is a kid adopted by a jungle. <laughs> <laughs> um right, literally um, true right he's raised by baloo and uh a whole bunch of animals instead of tarzan of the apes he's just raised by apes not by uh a bear and i don't know a tiger and a whole bunch of other stuff lions and tigers and the bears oh my yeah all right i guess uh we extracted what little juice was in this there's not a lot of juice to this story no. Jesse. i'm sorry to say <laughs> you were right there is not there's uh, uh, very little juice I, in here. I think I think it's interesting how um, I I feel like uh, I guess it's basically just the way that he told the story that kind of drew me in. Yep. More than the other things I read, not so much as the ideas. Uh, so I feel like he I feel like he had like tighter plotting here. 
Uh, uh, which which helped which helped me. I mean, compared to the other ones that that I read, it's kind of anyway. it's l- kind of like a Hitchcock <clears throat> movie, right? It's like a lot of yeah, running it's around. Kind of a thriller. Yeah, but the problem is, is I'm here for the science fiction ideas, right? Well, the pay- light on that. Well, that's part of the issue. Is the payoff is kind of straightforward, like. Like for me, like the setup, uh, you know, was was pretty good because like weird things would happen. And be like, oh, well, what's what's going on? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and it was it was still fun to find out what was going on. But it That's, just uh, that was our complaint, five, Paul, about the last uh, uh, Michael Crichton, right? Yeah. Grave Descent is that? Oh, it's it's got a interesting things happening, and then oh. Well, I guess that's explains it. <laughs> yeah. So so payoff. Like, yeah. yeah. Whereas um I think in previous uh Michael Crichton's there was like a uh, like drug of choice like Like drug of choice is really brilliant in that yeah. regard compared to compared to grade the yeah, the payoff like, is oh, much better. And yeah. and easy go um uh, this is another one that uh Tony has not read. Um that's the one set in Egypt where they're heisting right, uh, Right. It yeah. it was fun all the way through and then we get a, a nice ending um that is not earned exactly but is uh is satisfying. Um but the ideas there are like, you know, pretty minimal. And so at least Lester Del Rey has uh a few ideas in here. They're just not not very big. Or maybe they're too big, right? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they're, they're, there's none of restrictions. Yes, that's the real issue. Is and and so uh, to bound, compare bound, it to boundaries are impo- boundaries and constraints are important in any art, be it writing or yeah. But comparing it to example. the Julian May book, or Many Colored Land, that's a way better story. And the reason is she did come up with a bunch of restrictions that she said, "This is how this works. This is how this works," and then we have this, and then we say, "Oh." Yeah, I see it. Uh, whereas here, it's like this guy can explode things, and that guy can transfer any material from any other place. Any, any, and he does right. It's like no, it's too much. Too much. You can try. You can time travel as well as. Um. So uh, yeah, even what can't he do? What can't he do? Even if you were gonna like, if you gave this premise to a much better, I don't know, thinker like um. If if uh, if you said to Ted Chang, um, we need you to fix this story, um, and uh, we know you already have understand the way you should fix this. We want you to fix this. The time travel. He goes back and he does it to himself, uh, and uh, and everything. Like it actually is kind of like that in here. Like there are scenes where he's run. Th- those are kind of the coolest things, right? Where he saw himself earlier, but he didn't know it was him. Yeah, that's that's cool, and that's a very Heinlein move uh, for beyond bias yeah. bootstraps or whatever. But what are you I also really about? like the. I was just saying, I really like the part where the the car just suddenly, just floating. <laughs> the part where the, the car just suddenly floats up in the air and then goes away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I almost imagine that in uh, uh, like in like in uh, a classic cartoon, just the car just going being going up like. Whoop. Well, the the sound. running boards, the old-fashioned <laughs> running boards are yeah. uh, very – he's visualizing it. But, yeah, this is um, the least substantial Lester Del Rey I think we've done so far. I didn't hate it, though. No, it's a minor – it's minor 
amusement and unfortunately not much more, which is kind of sad. But, you know, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I think I still enjoyed it more than the other two, although the um, the sky is falling probably had the most interesting ideas mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that has a whole world to explore that the character winds up in. So, I like Badge of Infamy as well. All right, I remember liking it. Maybe I didn't. <laughs> I guess I'll find out when I show note it in six months or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you don't even know yourself. No. Okay, I guess we're done, guys. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> Talk to you all yeah, again. Yeah, Badge soon. of Infamy was the. Well, yeah, Badge of Infamy was what? the was the. Uh, was the Doctor epidemic one. on yeah. Mars, mm-hmm. and yeah, his ex-wife uh, runs runs the was working for the government. Yeah, I I, I was not a fan, as I recall. Uh, I wanted to uh, mention. I don't know if you saw it when it came out. I started watching it when it came out, and I I watched maybe the first season. Um, it's a show called uh, The Last Ship. Have you heard of this show? Oh, the last ship. I'm now. not familiar with it. It was a TNT show. Remember when there was network channels? <laughs> I remember. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> the world was young. Yeah, yeah. So this is, this is an interesting show because it's one of those. Uh, basically, the Navy funds the whole thing. Um, things, but uh, it's based on a novel, which is a lot like. Um, uh, who's the guy who wrote Town Called Alice? Um. Anyways, it's a novel. Uh, about nuclear holocaust around the world, and there's a submarine trying to find a port, and it goes to Australia, American submarine. That's, that's, oh, that sounds like um, that doesn't sound like a town called. That sounds like what's the that same author? Like, um, oh, it, oh, it's oh on the, on the beach. beach. That's right. So it's basically the novel is on the beach, but it's with a U.S. naval destroyer. They're on maneuvers in the Arctic or something, and then there's nuclear war, and then they go try and find, you know, a place to dock and get supplies and stuff. That's the book. So in adapting it for a television show, they they dumped the nuclear holocaust thing and they replaced it with a uh, global pandemic. And this show started in 2014 and ended in <laughs> five years later, a.k.a. <laughs> right, 2019. Um, and the premise is uh, almost everybody's dying of this uh, disease caused by uh um something um and then uh they are on a mission to find a cure for it but they have to wear you know masks everywhere and so it's it's really interesting and then at the end of the first season uh they come back and they find the remainders of the federal government uh and uh they think oh they're the good guys and we can help we can we can get the cure going and get everybody healthy. And it turns out that the U.S. government feds are um, uh, taking people into uh, like stadiums and giving them vaccines or cures. And uh, it's actually not. It's like Soylent Green. They're killing them and then using them for fuel uh, and getting rid of the the useless people and keeping good people or the valuable people and uh so it's like really interesting to watch because it's 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 uh all the like even talk about gain of function and like somebody modified the virus so it's all that stuff but it's funny because the original novel is a, a fear of nuclear war which is what you know it's a very 20th century fear and 
this they changed it to make it a pandemic fear and the fear of contamination. So it's an interesting show. It's pretty good. Um, and one of the things you'll like about it, Paul, um, yes, the second in command is uh, one of the actors from Firefly. He's the guy who likes guns, Jane. That actor. oh no, I don't. Uh, that, that 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 actually I don't like so much because you don't that like guy, Firefly. That, no, I, I Firefly is okay and fine, but the actor in question um, actor. is a right wing nut. Wow, yeah, but it doesn't mean they're so, bad, bad actor. No, no, but it's kind of I, now I see everything through that lens. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's that actor's name? I have no idea. Were you a Firefly fan, Tony? Um, I've still only seen the first pilot, like movie length episode. Yeah, it's kind of good, and there's some clunky. I enjoyed bits. it, but yeah. that's all I've seen. Alan ba- Adam Baldwin. That sounds right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, so he's a right wing nut. So okay, so I enjoyed him in Firefly, enjoyed him in Chuck, but now yeah, now was he in Chuck like, too? Oh yeah, that sounds like a role he would play. Yeah, he 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 he, he played the. Uh, I mean, he, he he. I mean, he's not so he's not crazy white wing. Then he's clearly white right wing in that playing an operative who's gun crazy in that. But he's so he's playing to himself, but not. It's as serious as yeah, it is in his actual So he's beliefs. typecast in his beliefs and his life and his films. Yeah. And his yes. shows. Basically, yes. I see. But, 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 but he doesn't play it to the extent he, his actual beliefs in Chuck, so I can accept that. But now he's kind of gone more. He's, he's, got, he's gone the way of Kevin Sorbo, sadly. Kevin Sorbo. Yes, Kevin Sorbo. Yeah. Yes, he's, he's, he's kind of gone these Kevin are not, Sorbo. These are not like deep, deep thinkers, Paul. Yeah, Kevin no, Sorbo's no. making Christmas movies where they have their mouths covered up by mugs. It's crazy. Mugs? <laughs> There's, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I, I watched a, a review once of one of Kevin Sorbo's movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this weird scene where they had they kept mugs oh, okay. in front of their faces. So they... I, so you can dub in, dub in later. that they dubbed in yeah, yeah, yeah. dialogue later or something. Yeah. yeah. That happens a lot where, you know, somebody's giving a speech and then they cut away to the audience and they're rewriting this speech. And then they come back when they got some semi-passable stuff. Because they, they're writing badly, right? They say, oh, that didn't sound so good. Let's let's punch it up. And then they have them come back in. So this is something we, we uh, don't see much in... Um, plays <laughs> you write first and then you perform the words right but in movies it's basically it's uh, it's largely almost like silent film right because they can redub depends everything. on the movie but the, but a lot of it they yeah, can redub they, the they, whole generally thing. it's more visual they can even change people's lips now to see make it seem like they're saying something different than they were um yeah they can do that a lot more effectively now i mean uh, that's. I think that uh, you can see special effects like that in movies going back pretty far, mm-hmm. but it's it's a lot easier to do it to do it now. Interestingly, uh, I saw the trailer for the new uh, what's that um, Indiana Jones movie, and there's clearly scenes where they've the dialed him. Destiny, yes, yeah. He's I haven't de-aged. watched the trailer yet. So if they make like the majority of the movie um, with de-aged Indiana Jones or Harrison Ford, um, I mean. I- it could be good. <laughs> it's just like eighty-year-old uh, action hero doesn't, you know, make you think that yeah, that's yeah, very plausible. Wonder, 
when is this movie actually set? Is it set after Crystal Skull? Before it Crystal says it's Skull? in the sixties and during World War Two, so there's time travel involved. Um, like it's in the, it's it's set in the sixties and it's also uh, World War Two, so um, it's, it could be memories, but people are thinking it's time um, travel. Um, I don't know. I still haven't even seen the last Indiana Jones movie. Um, it's pretty weak. It's that's it's, what it's, I heard. It's, that's it's, what... it's weak sauce. There's good uh, things in it, but it's pretty weak. I, I'm also not necessarily big into the Indiana Jones movies in general, but oh, I've really? seen all the first. Raiders is yeah, but I've movie. seen all the first three several times. Yeah, but they get progressively um, worse, right? Like Raiders is a, it's a terrific movie. Forget about the characters and all all that stuff. It's just a terrific movie. It's action sequences, all that stuff. I guess there is the, there was somebody talking about recently uh, how if Indiana Jones had done nothing, um, everything. You know, the Nazis would have been wiped out at the end. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're calling that a plot hole. Um, because what happens when they open it up, right? It kills all the Nazis. Um, so he didn't actually have uh-huh. to do anything. <laughs> he didn't need to be in the movie, uh, <laughs> which is a kind of a cool idea. Um, but, you know, the movie wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have had the truck chase. We wouldn't have had, uh, you know, the submarine. We wouldn't have had nothing exciting would have happened if there was no Indiana Jones. Um, actually, the one I used to watch the most was Temple of Doom, just because that's the one we had on tape. Yeah, and it had the it's good it had movie. The, the one kid from the Goonies in it. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's one of the best things about that movie. The problem is, yeah, it's, I think it's that was actually the worst of the originals, isn't it? I don't know. I yep. I, I think the they get progressively weaker. Okay, my, that's my you know because I, I remember thinking that um, the Last Crusade was was actually rather good like they're good movies I mean, they're all good movies like even the last one was good it's just not good you know like it's competently <laughs> done you know it's fun to see the action sequences but when you walk out of the movie theater you say that was okay but you don't think that was a movie right like well, you do I'm, with that, jaws that's kind or of how I- whatever in a way, that's kind of how I feel about Indiana Jones in general. They're 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 all fun movies, but uh, I don't feel like a big connection with any of them. Well, the best thing that came out of Indiana Jones is actually the Indiana Jones Chronicles, that uh, television show, TV series. Yeah. Yes, it's just I did used to watch that too. That's the best. Yeah, but it's very different. It's is that like, the same as Young Indiana Jones? Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, Young okay. Indiana Jones yeah. Chronicles. Um. Yeah, that was a fun show. At least it was when I when it was on. And I was watching educational, it Educational, highly educational. It doesn't seem like it's trying to do that most of the time, but it's especially obvious with the very, very young, and that's sort of where it's at its worst because he's just getting scolded all the time for, you know, going into the pyramid by himself or whatever. But Right. But it is uh, – it's – it's like they have an episode where they go to Paris and just hang out with artists all day and you get a bunch of different artists and their philosophies and why that art movement, like that's very unusual, very different and very different from regular Indiana Jones action sequence films. That sounds like something I would have enjoyed watching as a kid. Yeah, (laughs) it's terrific, (laughs) terrific show. And the DVDs came out with accompanying documentaries that are excellent. Like just oh, trying to nice. trying to show you what like the weird things that were happening in the early twentieth century, and that we we need like a lot more of that, a lot more history to help us. 
through our troubling, <laughs> troubling, uh, what's it called? Uh, when you can't remember anything? <laughs> what this well, guy? Amnesia? amnesia? Amnesia. Our troubling amnesia. I can't remember the word amnesia. I've got amnesia amnesia. Yeah, it was in the book we were talking I know. About. I know. I've got amnesia amnesia. The book gave you amnesia. It did. As soon as I finish a, uh, a book, it, I, I have amnesia about it until I edit it seven months later. I feel like self-inflicted amnesia isn't isn't as uh, too common a cliche or a trope. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen it. I've seen it done kind of in other things, but uh, I think. But well, I'm thinking of me- Memento, but that's different. That's not the same thing. What did Paul tweet half an hour ago? Or DM man who controls the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh- Yes, because I thought I, I saw this and I thought, well, this is important because of the Mark Twain episode oh. on yeah. on uh, travels abroad. That because he goes, he, he goes there, he goes there several times, and I saw this map. It's like, hey, Jesse would love this. He might actually even want this for for the episode because 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 I Twain like, points out that yeah. have to, all these different all these different Christian denominations have pieces of this church. Here's a map that lays it all out. Yeah, that's interesting. I thought, I thought you might like it. And you know about me and maps. So. Yeah. You're a map guy. I'm a map guy. So it's like, Oh yes, please. Thank you. Please. And thank you. Please. And thank you. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, went on about that, didn't he? He he he! I mean, he goes. He I mean, he said he kept going back and back to it. I mean, I mean, it goes to my whole thesis that yeah, this, this really is a pilgrimage book, and going to and this place is the is the axis mundi of the entire expedi- expedition. This 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 is the heart of it. Going to this church, and since it's one of the most important places in Christendom, I guess that makes perfect sense. Uh yeah. 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 It's yeah. foundational. <laughs> it's foundational. Quite literally. <laughs> That's cute. Cath- so, yeah. Catholicon. Yeah. There's um, a lot of uh, all these little special rooms for everybody. And uh, everybody, the next everybody person gets in the tweet thread says, puts uh, John Travolta from Pulp Fiction wandering around. Not knowing what to do, Protestants be like. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey guys, I think I need to get going. All right, but, yeah, uh, thank I you. Have to go I appreciate too. y'all have me in here, uh, uh, Jesse. Thank I'll try to tweet to you about that uh, that story I read later, yeah. and the, uh, I'll, I'll dish, just get the, the magazine the it's dish. in. <laughs> yeah. Um, when's the next one you're on? I don't remember. Well, um, I, let's see. Um, oh, next week. Next one I see with Tony is The Darkest Rising in the, oh, okay. in the New Year. All right. So have, have a happy New Year, Tony. I'll oh, see thank you. you. you in who January. wrote The Darkest Rising? January 1st. About who wrote it? Cooper. Susan, Susan Cooper. Cooper. Oh, okay. It's part of a four-book series, I think, but it's I think it's book two, but everybody says right. just read The Darkest Rising. So. Yeah, that's and, that, and that's fair. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I'll look forward to reading it. Yep. Sounds good. Yep. Y'all have a good day. You too. Take care, Tony. All right, Paul. Um, maybe I'll see you for PUBG later. Maybe. Have a good um, game. I, I intend to, the characters are going to try to assault, uh, assault uh, a crime lord that runs a city. 
that has taken um, the the captive princess that they've been escorting for half of the series, half of the, half of this game. Escort so mission. They, well, now they got now it's a rescue mission because the escort mission has gone sideways. I see. So it's going to be fun. Uh, is this based on uh, something in particular? It's it's kind of based on on Jack Vance's Chai novel. Ah. Other stuff thrown in. So yeah, so they're on the planet Chai, but I've thrown other things in. Nice. So so yeah. Do your players know I, that? Yeah, they know that. Uh, so they, they're, none they're of them are read it. <laughs> no, none of them have read Chai. So all right. So they've kind of. And plus all the other stuff I've thrown in kind of muddied the waters a bit. Yeah, I would. There's no magic on Chai, but they have magic. Players muddying things, too. That happens. Yeah, um, you wouldn't believe the stuff they've gotten up to, Jesse. Yeah. You just would not believe. Um, it's kind of been hilarious. Um, that's why you GM. To find out what the stories are. Mm. Play, to f- play to find out. All right, sir. I'll see you later. Sounds good. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. It's, we're also cold, so yeah, the snow... We're in snow season now. I don't expect it to. Um, the roads are relatively clear because of because uh, it's not so so cold that the chemicals don't work. But there's going to be snow on on the grass and on the sidewalks and everything else probably for the season now until the January thaw. If January, if we get a January thaw, mm, we had a snow. So, yeah, but it's mostly yeah, it's, melted. It, um, yeah, it's minus one right now, but. Yeah, we're good at whoa! It's whoa! Melting. It's whoa! It's below freezing there. What a yeah! What a concept! Yeah, it happens. is here. Oh, it's actually warm here. It's actually only minus nine Celsius. I saw a um, one of those, you know, bad map accounts or something this morning, and it was um, showing uh, the latitude of. North America compared to Europe, Florida is like down in Egypt, and uh. yeah, yeah, yeah. North America is. Mm-hmm. I mean, Europe is further, most further north than you expect. Yeah, Britain is north of British Columbia. <laughs> um, well, but, it's I mean, it's not. It's north of where I am in British Columbia. It's most of Vancouver, half, but yeah, yeah, but about you know, halfway up. The, the Gulf, the Gulf Stream makes it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, California is only down like near Morocco. It's not. It's not. Uh, I mean, it makes well, sense. Ca- I mean, California has a Mediterranean climate. Yeah. So it makes but sense. Southern Mediter- Mediterranean. <laughs> well, I mean, along the coast. I mean, outside of the desert, right along the seashore, Morocco and Algeria and Libya are supposed to be rather pleasant, kind of like southern Italy. Mm-hmm. I've never been. I would like to because there are plenty of Roman ruins to see and other things. Those but too many places Romans too little time. Everything. Um, <laughs> possibly. Uh, they they certainly a did a thing. They certainly did. A, they <laughs> I would have a great uh, uh, set of material for stand up 
Uh, unfortunately, the audience wouldn't get almost anything. Um, so it's not <laughs> Paul would like that then. one. Well, no, it's, it's great not, material. It's just not for, it, the, it, no, for that no, audience. Yeah, well, yeah you I have, have to. to I, have to, I have to go pick the audience out of out of the universe and bring them all together. Making Stanley G. Weinbaum jokes is not going to go over well with them. No, mo- 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 most 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 people will not go on that Martin uh, Martin uh, Martian Odyssey with you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm here all week. Tried the veal. This one's pretty good. Um, titter. Titter. Yeah. Um. Look at that. I mean, people will get upset because they're smoking, but. God, I no, I don't want to know. It's fine. I don't want to know, do I? It's probably cultural appropriation at some point. Vaccine, titter. I don't know if it's cultural appropriation. It's just a well, she's just kind of, a forties image. Like well, her costume is kind of. Um, I don't gypsy. know what that. Yeah, maybe big I mean, earring. There's a lot. There's pirate. a lot going. There's a lot going on in that costume with that. Mm-hmm. Parrot that um, parrot. Yeah, it doesn't I've, look too happy about the match it's holding. I, I, I believe the phrase is, "I have questions." It's America's merriest magazine. Well, backstage with the blonde, parrot. she's she's uh, having her parrot light her cigarette on a what what what's that thing? Hold, cigarette holder? Is there not a yeah cigarette holder? Cigarette holder? I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's just a cigarette holder. Cigarette. There might be. There might be. A, there, there might be another name. Should be. Cigarette holder. Wikipedia. Mm, is a fashion accessory, a slender tube in which a cigarette is held for smoking. Made of silver, jade, or bakelite. Considered an essential part of ladies' fashion in the 1910s. Why? Um. Why is any fashion trend come up? Mm. It just, you know, these things kind of happen. Yeah, but like, it, <laughs> it makes your cigarette longer. <laughs> well, yes, but you also keep your pipe, hands off the pipes. Are like functional in a certain sense. You you can't have burning stuff in your mouth, right? Generally, people don't. So. I guess it probably makes sense that today's cigarettes, they all have filters. And back then, they yeah. wouldn't have had filters. So this allows you to burn it down to the stub. What about that, Paul? Same with cigars, uh, um, right? Your cigar doesn't have a... Uh, uh, you can't burn it right down to the nub because you'd burn your fingers. It's an eco- economic measure. Okay, here. Yeah. Listen. Practical accessories serve several purposes. Primary use was to prevent ash falling onto a woman's clothes. That makes sense. Especially since women didn't wear smoking jackets. That makes sense. This is also why longer holders were more for more formal occasions, which usually had more elaborate dress codes. Kept side stream smoke further from the smoker's eyes and out of from under the lady's hat. Oh yeah, which often had a wider brim than a man's hat. Helped prevent nicotine staining the fingers. Oh, yes. And gloves. Reducing staining of teeth. I wonder how. 
kept the thin cigarette paper from it sticking. does not yeah i think that's i think that's uh called bullshit uh, well you know i'm not sure like there may be a half-life for for nicotine uh, staining i i don't know. i don't think so yeah but it's coming right into your mouth no it's not cited so i'm just reading what it has here kept the thin cigarette paper from sticking to and tearing on the smoker's lips that's possible cooled and mellowed the smoke inhaled that makes sense i don't know about mellowed but certainly cooled um holders sometimes encased a filter for taste and then later health reasons before the advent of filtered cigarettes and see that was my explanation in the 60s the holder also kept tobacco flakes out of the mouth, smoker's mouth that is disgusting um i'm, I'm getting nauseous just thinking about that Blech. Uh, enamel horn tortoiseshell amber ivory. What are y'all doing? We're talking Having about some stogies. We're talking about um, cigarette holders. Yeah, it's, it's so not nauseous, but not yeah. not quite stogies then. No, no I sure put a no. picture in the chat. <laughs> Let's uh, say no. Or a Twitter. Let's just say no. <laughs> Sorry, I missed that conversation. Oh, it's fascinating and deep. How's your snow level? Uh, none right now. Okay. Did you get any in the last week? Not yet, actually. Okay. We haven't had any um, snow around our neighborhood yet this year. We're in North Carolina, so it's mm-hmm. kind of sometimes you never quite know when you're going to get the snow. But I feel like there's been at least one snowstorm uh, per year since I've been here. Hey, uh, where were you before? South Carolina, where oh. it snows even less. Yeah. Yeah, and they're not that far apart, right? Uh, not too far. Um, where I am right Separated now, Separated by is, a border. <laughs> right, I'm about four hours from Myrtle Beach, where I used to live. Okay, four hours north, yeah. I take it. Yes, north or north of where I used to live. Right, a little bit north of Charlotte. I'm vaguely familiar with it. Um, we got some snow in Paul's. Our, ours mostly melted, and Paul's is stuck. I mean, we, I mean, yeah, we got eight inches and it stayed below freezing. So, yeah. We got 20 to 30 centimeters. 20 to 30 centimeters. If I, you think, I think that's what it said. Um, um, eight inches is 24 centimeters. Yeah. No, no, that's 2.56. No. Uh, eight inches is 16 plus half of six. Yeah, no, I'm actually right. I, I'm so, just using my fingers. <laughs> I it's, don't 20, know. It's, 20, it's, 20, it's 20 centimeters. Yeah. Something so, like that. So. Mar- ours was mostly melted, and um, uh, I I uh, was worried about slipping and falling because there's a lot of... Uh, we're not used to it, so even though we salt and do all the horrible stuff, sand and all that stuff, it, it the sidewalks are bad. So I had a couple days where oh. it was scary. But it seems mostly melted now. All right. Um, next week is Heads of Cerberus. Um, when is Paul on vacation? In two weeks. Uh, the Many-Headed Hydra. Paul's gone. Christmas, there's nothing happening. Dark is rising. Tony's in for that. The Skull. Paul's back. Is uh, Dark is rising? Who wrote that one again? Susan Cooper. Susan Cooper. Okay. Yeah, and I haven't read Susan Cooper yet. Me neither. Well, it's good. It's time, gentlemen. It's time. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, uh, I haven't read it, but um, I will send you the audio for it. Um, it's not. It's January, so you got lots of time. 
And then we got the skull, the moon maid. I'm excited about the moon maid. Agar's burrows, yeah. Yeah, it's been, um, it's got centaurs in it. So I haven't read any of Agar's burrows either. Nothing? Wow. Maybe I'll try for that one. Yeah. Dude. Not, wow. Not we got we to gotta fill, fill these gaps in your, uh, in your CV. You're going to uh, like yeah. Edgar Rice Burroughs because he's really good. He's a very talented writer and likes likes action, likes adventure, very clean prose. Um, he's a little racist or a lot racist, but... A lot. I think I think a lot is the right Well, it, he personally was very racist, but it doesn't come up that often in his stuff. Like, unless there's a scene in Tarzan that's super racist. Um, I think no cinnamon. Yeah. Sorry, he was chewing on Coleman. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Shadows in Zambula, speaking of racist, there's a Robert oh. E. Howard. Uh, Howard. Space Viking by H. Beam Piper. Uh, was he racist? Probably. Um, he was an American. <laughs> I, mean, well, I haven't heard anything he, about, I mean, I mean, I mean, that about him, but... He, he's not beyond the... He's not outside the whole actual lot, boundaries of his time. I mean, I mean, he doesn't focus on it. Piper? Yeah, he doesn't. Fo- he doesn't focus on it. I mean, you could. I mean, if you squint He's at it, maybe. Right? I mean, if you squint at it, maybe. Sorta. If you look at his, where is um, he from? Is he is he from the Carolinas? I can't remember now. Each Texas, mean. isn't he? No, don't think so. Uh, let's see, Pennsylvania born, Pennsylvania oh, died. Okay. Well, okay, that makes that that makes sense. It's Calvin Morrison. Maybe he's not a Southerner. <laughs> well, if he's from Central Pennsylvania, Jesse, that's a different thing because you know because um because the phrase goes Pennsylvania is Philadelphia in the east, Pittsburgh in the west, and Alabama in the middle. Altoona is where he's born. Which yep, is yep. So so he he's Central. from Uncle yeah. Alabama, Pennsylvania, interesting, which is very conservative. Interesting. And that, well, that, that that's that's the area my family, my mother's family, came from. Wilkesbury, and then died in Williamsport, which is uh, yeah, over so, on the so, right a bit. So, so that's that's coal miner country. That's very conservative. That's where my mother was born, and where my mother eventually died. Wow, that's where my grandmother is from, and my grandfather is from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know the song "Coal Miner's Daughter." I saw the movie. I think um, my mother was a coal miner's daughter. Mm. So I am a coal miner's grandson. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it is my in my DNA. The famous sequel. <laughs> um, you shouldn't have any I've coal in a, your DNA, but carbon's I've, I've been in, I've been in a coal mine. I visited a coal mine. That's about it. Mm-hmm. I've never worked in one. Well, you, you just like uh, bring a broom, and then you can say I worked in a coal mine. Mm, that, <laughs> that, might, that might be a little fit. Uh, I recently watched an episode of Documentary Now, which involved a coal mine uh-huh. briefly. Oh, uh, here, Paul. Here's a tip. When, whenever you, uh, whenever you um, w- w- meet somebody with a PhD, you, you ask, "Can I uh, see your your diploma?" And then you go over to their diploma and you hold it, and you say, and you say "I hold." <laughs> you can collect all sorts of. I hold a degree. Yeah, it's PhDs in engineering and doctoring, and except uh, you don't get them in doctoring. Well. Well, I mean, uh, medical and MD is technically a PhD in medicine. Um, not really. A PhD well, is no, doctor no, so of no, philosophy. Well, well, no, well, P, well, no, no. So it is. It is the equivalent. So, mm, well, so it's it's kind of different. It, the the history of um, 
of doctoring is very interesting. It's sort of, um, it's, I, 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 I really got interested like the, the difference between surgeons and doctors and how they were fighting about who's going to, you know, get what title and what privileges and all that stuff. Cause they're, uh, surgeons are sort of later development, not exactly, but kind of barbers. See, they don't get no respect. All right. There's a, there's a, there's a, there was a, there was an episode of an anthology series called monsters. Remember monsters? Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the twilight zone. And there was one involving vampires and barbers. Right. Yeah. Sounds it was familiar. I think it was it like, had Will Wheaton in it. Well, that now it's a good episode. I, I haven't heard of this, <laughs> but actually now I want to see it. Yeah, Check it, on it, YouTube. Was, it was it was a good episode. They basically these two kids find out there's vampires running a barber shop in a small town, and well, I will let you watch it, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. But it turns it turns out there's connections between ancient connections between barbers and vampires in this story. Uh, Paul, did uh, do you see? Um, we had the venom business. I can't remember. I. Did not see okay, the so venom. What is the venom business? That's um, the next Michael Crichton John Lang book. Okay, I wasn't too thrilled with the last one. As Grave you know. Descent. Grave Descent. I told we. I'll, we, we, we listeners will find out it about it. It was seven it wasn't months. Terrible. It, 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 no, it wasn't terrible. It was just was not up to the standards of the other ones. It venom was, business was, is the last thing on the list. Golden Slave is right before that. Um, well, Golden Slave is my idea because that's yeah, what Anderson. Yeah. So we got some good stuff. Oh, oh, you already put me on. You didn't even have a question mark. Yeah, me. I guess we talked about it. I don't know. We, we, that or you just you, you just presume, which is, which is not a bad presumption. Mike. Yeah. I, it's it's, it's not unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it was a long time ago. Okay. Any other business? Anything else needed to be added before we... Uh, get started or any uh i have a sad podcast story oh let me hear it sad story it turns out we either i either lost the recording or never properly downloaded the recording of me and jerry canavan talking about the larry niven story oh no yeah that was i was gonna have using the um the built-in recorder I believe so, and I believe I never downloaded it on time. You but need I'm not to 100%. not rely on that. Unfortunately, it's it's a bad system. Yeah, it, because it gives you the output uh, only if you download it, right? Yeah. Whereas if you use the system Paul and I use, which is called MP3 Skype Recorder, it automatically records to a folder on your computer, and then you know you have it on your computer it's 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 like um it's like uh those passport you go to a hotel in a foreign country and ask for your passport <laughs> you're beholden yeah, okay. to them right well I'll, um, I'll look into that program on your recommendation then yeah it's called mp3 skype recorder it's got a, like a i think a red or a blue symbol with it looks kind of like a backwards percentage sign hmm. let me just look well, how much was it? Um, was like six bucks, something like that. Um, something like that. Um, might be. I know there's a cheap, there's a free version, but the 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 uh, pro edition is. Um, yeah, here it is. It's called VoipCallRecording.com. Is the website. 
It's uh, eight, actually it's eighteen bucks. Well, eighteen bucks. They, Holy shit! They increased the price. Yeah, they increased the price apparently. Like a one-time price. Yeah, it's a one-time yeah. price. Mm. But it it generally doesn't crash, which is very good. Oh, speaking so. of crashing, my um, Paul, my uh, my um, old Windows Seven machine that had for my standing desk and the uh, PUBG game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was doing an update and it uh, crashed, and then every subsequent recovery attempt is it's getting stuck at thirty five percent. I'm like, fuck! Oh, you are in trouble. Fucked, so you are in trouble. Well, no, I'm not because I had that uh, other computer that I bought in the summer that I've been trying to bring online, and that is working. <laughs> so, oh boy! So I took a big update, and uh, it's up plugged into the other spot so i do have to figure out how to fix this windows 7 crash problem but yeah. it's good to have a, a computer ready to, all ready to go to replace things you don't want to be stuck without a computer all right. not in this day and age no not if you want to keep up with the latest excitement so where do you see the price on here paul i don't see it if you go to hit the pro thing and go through to uh pro edition versus download free oh okay so the free must be like a half hour or something right uh yeah i, I it, it does it has um like 30 news. hours a month i think you're not oh yeah okay hours. yeah so that and might work for you if Tony. you don't do more than 30 hours a month then it might actually work yeah because i i do probably i don't 30. usually but I, I mean if i run out then i always have backup methods i can use but even so, you could, um, you know, if I, I <clears throat> yeah, it's only but for Skype, right? It it's not for all recordings. It's just for Skype. Right. Yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't likely get over that per month. No, no, I can't imagine you would, considering <laughs> you know you're not recording that much. Jesse, on the other hand, yeah, because on the other hand, yeah, I am going to hopefully be recording some again soon. I'll try to get to the novellas that were nominated. I keep, but even so, it. I'm thinking like. Uh, how many? Uh, th- there's how five weekends in a month sometimes, right? Um, oh, two yeah. times no, five is ten hours. So if you did two hours, yeah, I mean, theoretically, I'd, I'd have you could to, get away without it. Yeah. I, I'd have to record unusual, an unusually large amount. For, yeah, <laughs> for that to happen, yeah, probably. So, I, no sense not getting it and uh, plugging it in. It seems to work pretty good. It has. Uh, it's called VoIP. I just put it in the chat. No, no, it's called MP3 okay. Skype. Recorder. It's MP3 it's a, Skype. It, it, it's a VoIP call recorder, but it's uh, okay. MP3 Skype recorder 6.15. Probably they got in trouble for using the word Skype uh, because Skype Probably. was pressing people out of this business. So, yeah, so. Yeah, oh, um, it looks like, yeah, you have to get the lame MP3 encoder probably separately. Did you have to do that, Paul? It's so long ago since I. It's so long ago, I don't remember. Yeah. I know Probably, that it works maybe. that way for um, for, for um, Audacity. You have Audacity, to yes. Download it separate. So stupid. Yeah. Well, again, that's restrictions and stuff. You yeah. can't bundle them together and all this other crap. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Uh, yeah. Oh. Well. Um, okay. I think we're pretty much ready. I'm gonna put a. Um, I'm just going to dig up the magazine that was in to get the illustrations. There's my recorder. It there is it going is. just fine. Good. I have the I have the magazine up. All right. Fear, 
We are cut through the unconscious mind of Wilbur Hawks. Um, Fear is the mind killer. I should save that for the podcast, though. Uh, don't you don't need to save that. That's for a different show. Uh, uh, is it? Pretty sure I read the story. <laughs> um, one moment. Uh, pursuit by. Uh, what do we call this? Yeah. Uh, Buster right. Are we recording now? Uh, I are, I've started the yeah. recording. We haven't started the show. Oh, yet. we're going to get there momentarily. Right. I do, I do have game today. Don't worry, Paul. We'll get you to your gaming. I'll start recording as a backup. There you go. Thank you. All right. Why is it not coming up? Oh, I spelled pursuit wrong. Maybe that's why. That might be a good reason. It's hard to spell. There we go. Paul's singing the classics. Paul's singing the classics. They probably should have called it something less complicated, like Chase. Oof. No, I don't know. Save it for the podcast. <laughs> All right. But well, we are recording. Yes, we are. Yeah, yes. Well, Here we but, go. But, 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 but we haven't had the our announcement yet, and we're not. Here no. we go. In the meantime, we're just in pre-chat. Uh, yeah, I don't. Do you have anything spicy? I all my things are kind of boring. <laughs> Oh, I had my sad podcast story, which I already told you. Right, right. Uh, well, we we figured out a uh, way to solve that. Although oh, I think Jerry Canavan and I are going to record, re-record, reread the story and re-record at some All point. Right. Just make sure you uh, get that recorder going. Um, exactly. <laughs> how about this, Paul? Um, yeah. Uh, I tweeted this yesterday with a student. I reread The Velt by Ray Bradbury a.k.a. the world the children made, and though maybe it strikes me every time, it struck me this time, that it runs through the ideas of and is the origin for Star Trek's holodeck technology. What happens in holodeck episodes? The safeties are broken, and something something simulated is made real. The children, Peter and Wendy, are so holodeck addicted that when the parents try to lock them out of it, they use it to kill their parents. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember thinking did, that I, before, I, I, but maybe it's, I, it, 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 well, it is true. They, 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 the parents want to leave them, make them leave the house and they're, they're like Barclay and, and they're texting and they're kind of, they kind of really cross about this. So they lock them in that room with the lions. Yeah. But like uh, all the stuff that happens in holodeck episodes, you know, like, um, some we're trapped in the holodeck and things have turned real. Yeah, the safeties are off, or the safeties are off, and you can't just uh, summon the arch. Mm-hmm. And then there's a there's a few phenomenons where like um, people get. Oh, I heard a cat. People get. Uh, yeah, I keep having the cinema. Sam keeps trying to chew on my earbuds cord. That's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> um. There's uh, there's like episodes where um, people get addicted and then like you're thinking of Barkley, yeah, Barkley, Bar- the when where Barkley's mad at like the rest of the crew, so he turns he them, them in, he, he punches he Riker. You remember? Yeah. He turns, he sort of, uh, and then he steals um, uh, Counselor Troy away from Riker on the holodeck. By being so manly, it's like um, wish fulfillment sort of stuff. <laughs> and then they walk yeah. in on it, and like, dude, you shouldn't be having like s- virtual sex with 
or actual or whatever with uh, people who are on the ship. That's not cool. That's very unethical. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> but um, there's also there's also an episode, uh, an, an awkward episode of Deep Space Nine where some uh, some guy who's not normally on the station. Uh, becomes obsessed with Kira and is and is hired Quark to create some sort of um, hollow suite mm. program mm-hmm. with with the specs of Ensign, excuse me, of um, Major Kira mm-hmm. Nerys, uh, and he spends the episode trying to get her physical specs or whatever. Right. right. Um, <laughs> yeah, Quark and, does. Uh, but, yeah, uh, of course. What happens at the at the end? Um, spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers. Um, Kira finds out, and they um, uh, they they switch the program. And when when the the customer finally goes into this hollow sweep program, it's Kira's um, body with Quark's head. Yes, I remember sexy and, uh, Quark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty decent special effect at the time, I guess. <laughs> My mind. They, they, my they mind. actually they actually referenced that episode in in Lower Decks, and where they went to Deep Space Nine in an episode of Lower Decks, and that sounds the, like a typical Lower Decks move. Yeah, Mariner actually um, blackmails Quark into a um, free drinks because she has because she has that program still. They should just like like delete all of that and just do a cartoon Deep Space Nine because. Uh, that's what I want. I want real Star I'd Trek episodes, it. not just member berries and and eye gouging. Just do all. Uh, you know, you is could that, you could do Picard as a effects? Next Generation season eight as a cartoon, right? I mean, they did it for the original Star Trek. They did do it original Star Trek, but those episodes are pretty clunky. Yeah, pretty clunky. But, well, but, I, well, I personally well. quite. I personally quite like Lower Decks and uh, Star Trek Prodigy, the computer animation. Well, well, yeah, yeah really well, cool. I mean, Lower Decks, Lower Decks is good. Compared to but, everything else, it's 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 fine. The problem is it's not really Star Trek. It's something else. It's like meta Star Trek. It, 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 it is commentating on Star yeah. Trek inside of Star Trek, which is a little weird. But, it, you know. But, it, it like, the episodes are, like, not science fictional they're meta science fictional yeah but and, that's fine the, but, but i like room, star trek there, i didn't like there's room, you know. there's room there's room in star trek to have meta commentaries on star trek that's i'm i'm okay with that well some fans actually think it's the most like classic trek of all the shows <laughs> depends who you talk to though depends who you talk I mean, to though yeah I, I mean, I'd say, I'd, new, I'd say Strange New Worlds I mean, is the most likely I mean, classic I mean, Trek. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's trying to do classic new Trek in the 21st century. Classic that's what new Strange Trek. New Worlds is trying to do. <laughs> classic, classic old Trek in the 21st yeah. century. <laughs> it, 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 it's Trek. trying to it's trying to trying to capture that lightning in the bottle and make it in a 21st century format. Uh, I saw the first episode, and there was a lot of stuff that they would never, ever, ever, ever do on the old Trek. And the reason is they didn't really care about characters very much. It was all about the story. So there's a lot of character development, which we think of as like, you know, very important now. But I, I, I mean, I consider that as a plus, but <laughs> yeah, a lot of, I mean, it's the, it's the dominant mode right now we have character development, but, mm-hmm. but like if you go back to the original Star Trek and you think, 
Mr. Spock, he raises his eyebrow and they make mm-hmm. a joke at the end of every episode. That's that's not character development. It's st- sort of static, right? And all the things that he, you know, we know about Mr. Spock, all the mind melds and uh ponfars and all like those are all from episodes about ideas and then they just sort of accumulate and then don't forget about them. But now it's like we need to have oh, we have a Vulcan on the ship, we have to have a Ponfar episode. Right. It's like, no, that's not how uh, how was what you if you wanna like do that, what you need to do is find a new alien and make up something. Did they have a Ponfar episode? All, all, almost every Star Trek with an with a Vulcan does. Like there's a one in Enterprise, there's one in Okay. In, I, Voyager. I was just trying yeah, to remember is all. There's a Voyager one. I don't think there's a Deep Space Nine because they don't really have, they don't have a Vulcan. Vulcans much. Which is one of the reasons it's such a good show. Either. No, there is one. It's like a it's like a um Oh that's right. Lower deck sort it was of a guest style. star. Yeah, something like that. It wasn't one of the main characters no, or anything. No, no. It was like guest they don't star have script, a so. they don't have a Vulcan main character, yeah. right? I just don't remember there being any uh I think there might have been references to Ponfar in Strange New Worlds, but I don't think they had a Ponfar episode. No, they didn't, but in the, I I only saw the first episode, but they do all so maybe like, they they do a lot of sex scenes, like like let's lie around the Vulcaning. <laughs> but the problem is is that's not that's not a that's not a science fiction idea. That's just character development, which, you know, then, but like, I just measured it based on like, if you compare the first episode of, uh, strange new worlds to the first episode of, or any episode of the old star Trek, the way they would break it down is the, the pre credit sequence, um, gets them to the problem of the episode. Then we get the, you know, whatever it's called and then we see the Theme song yeah i guess the planet <laughs> technical term yeah um excuse me do you have the oh, yeah. compact disc yes oh, 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 oh. um so uh right after that they would show the plant the the spacecraft in orbit around the planet in question or the space anomaly in question, right? If you compare that to the first episode of Strange New Worlds, that doesn't happen until half hour into or 27 minutes or something like that into the episode. So all of that pre-credit stuff is just like squished into a long thin strand that goes almost halfway to the episode. And then they have the back half of the episode dealing with everything after the pre-credit sequence. And that's because they're trying to introduce you to all the characters. And if you remember the original um, pilot episode for TNG, it's really bad, right? Like it's because they're doing all this introduction stuff and the story is like sort of an afterthought and the story is kind of lame. Like there's two things going on. One, there's a, like a space squid that wants to have sex and is being tortured or something. And then there's a, a Q. And that's and it's like sort of two bad ideas squished together. But well, Q, that, that, Q turns that, into a good character after a while. But the, the two ideas being squashed together is something that almost literally happened because DC Fontana wrote a script 
And then Gene Wadden, Gene Roddenberry rewrote it, and then added all this all of this other extra stuff, so they could have a feature length episode. Yeah, yeah, because uh, that wasn't the original plan. So they literally did kind of just take two stories and squash them together. And it's pretty, it's it's pretty bad. And you know, like unfortunately, the first couple seasons of Next Generation aren't that great. No, but uh, but there's a lot of good idea episodes, even though they sort oh, of sure. doing them wrong. There's still some good episodes, even in the some first Some terrific episodes, ideas-wise. But yeah, they're clunky, and they don't really know... They haven't got their footing yet. The uniforms don't fit right. Um, they don't... You know, Counselor Troy's, you know, not doing her job properly because she doesn't know what her job is, and neither does the audience. Um, so it takes some time, but... Yeah, it gets, it gets quite good. I've actually been listening to an audiobook about Star Trek. Which one? <clears throat> it's called the fifty-year mission. The next twenty-five years, the or and I think it's just uh, the oral history of Star Trek. Uh-huh. I think it's made by the same people that did the oral history of Saturday Night Live book I listened to recently. And I haven't heard the first one, which does the original series and the animated series and the the you know original cast movies. Um, the one I've been listening to goes from um, next gen. Uh, up to all the way up to the J.J. Abrams movies. I'm not saying oral history, but there's oh, I see. Here it is: complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history. There we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean it's all ex- it's all excerpts from actual like interviews, right, 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 stuff like that. Um, anyway, I've been listening to that, and actually, that's a lot of the people who worked on um, Next Gen. We're, you know, we're actually pretty disappointed that they couldn't spend more time on character. Um, and there was also a lot of conflict because Gene Roddenberry had a lot of strict rules, you know, about like no interpersonal conflict between mm-hmm. the actual main characters. And I think he was stuff. right to do that, though, because it eventually turns into a very interest. Like there are no interpersonal conflicts on on Next Generation. It's actually a really good idea. the The closest we get is like, yeah, Barkley being awkward, social awkwardness. I mean, I, I can kind of, especially after hearing the book and hearing people from all sides of the situation, I can I can kind of see like both sides of that. Um, but I I feel like I feel like people on both sides of that issue didn't really uh, handle the handle the concerns very well. So. Mm-hmm. It's hard because it's a constraint that, and it's so easy, right? It's so easy to have two people in the room yelling at each other as a content. Um, by the way, the narrator on this um, book, um, yeah. a bunch There's of There's like four narrators, yeah, I think. But one of them's been on this podcast quite a bit. Uh, Edward Gross, Aaron Landon, Alex Hyde-White, and David Stifle. David Stifle did a whole lot of... Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's he started a podcast of narrating Edgar Rice Burroughs, and every time he put out a new uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, we'd do a show uh, on oh. that first book. So I wonder which oh. um, which I'm trying. I, I don't know what his voice sounds like outside of this. So um, uh, well, I'm trying to think. Which, <laughs> I wonder which one he, he was. He was a he was a movie and TV actor as well, um, and he had the, like a very small role in minority report and a few other things. So I mean overall the reading from all four of the narrators is pretty good. Yeah. Um 
They they do um, it's a occasionally thirty four point two out of thirty four and a half hours. Yeah, it's 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 a big it's big and that's a chunky book. <laughs> it's a chunky uh, chunky. They don't always pronounce all of the the names and Oof. and uh, weird Star Trek words correctly, but I mean, they have to read like so many different people and mention so many different characters and so many different things that I, I feel like it would have been hard for for them to get everything right, but. It's, Hard to say. Seems to be getting pretty good reviews. That's the only criticism I would have of it, and uh, I don't think it's that big of a problem. <laughs> you know who I'm they mean the, if even they don't, don't know who they now. mean. Yeah, that's a chunky book. Yeah, that's good. I got the. I'm on the last. I'm on like the epilogue now. After, they have already talked about the Abrams movies, and now they got like an epilogue about the pop culture influence. So how do they handle it? Is it by essay or like what narrators do? What work uh well they the narrator it actually switches between the narrators all the time because they just have some of the some of the male persons they've got all of the male persons uh split up between two male uh voice actors and then there's like uh one or two uh female actors as well Hmm. Uh, they just kind of honestly switch between the four of them all the time um, although they are consistent about like, like, you know, if they talk to, um, you know, if, if the, the same person who plays Marina Sirtis in one mm, part will okay. you know, play Marina Sirtis I again see. late, I got it. you know what I mean? Yeah. So everyone's basically assigned like specific people that they're, that are being quoted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, for the most part it works. Um, some of them will actually do a little bit of a light impression. Some of them just kind of just do like their own voice, but. Um, mm-hmm. But it all works pretty well, and they have a, a sectioned out by kind of like the first chunk is about Star Trek: The Next Generation, the series. The next chunk is about the Next Generation movies. Oof. The next chunk is about Deep Space Nine. The next chunk about Voyager. The next about Enterprise. Then one about the Abrams movies, and then this epilogue that I'm in. They didn't do Voyager? They didn't do Abrams movies instead of Voyager? And... No, though, they did Voyager. I mentioned oh, okay. it, I thought. Oh, did you? Okay, maybe. They one of the chunks is for Voyager, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, well, no, and they even also I want they the even abridged also one. Talk about, <laughs> I'm sorry, they actually have chunks, too, about the periods of time <laughs> where there were projects, Star Trek projects being developed. But like Star Trek II and uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. those. So. Well, one I didn't know much about all these Star Trek movie projects that had been, you know, written before the Abrams movies happened. Mm. Um, some of which actually sound kind of interesting. Like one of them was going to actually uh, be a little bit of a kind of a darker Star Trek movie that covered the um, Earth Romulan War. You know, pre Federer. You know, um, uh, I, I well, I'm not sure if that's pre. I think I'm not sure if that's pre Federation. I think it is. I don't know. Don't but care. it's supposed to be really early in Star, really early in Star Trek history. Like it would have been the earliest we've seen in a Star Trek movie if they had made it. Like I think Kirk's grandfather was going to be in it, hmm. or something like that. Well, they, but, you know, uh, they they didn't it. have it all um, organized in time yet, right? By the time they were working on those, well, they had a whole screenplay written for it. You know what I mean? Is like the chronology of Star Trek exists now, but that's because they've had. And even then, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago. This is like in the early 2000s I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. They were developing this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, even now, this chronology of Star Trek is kind of timey-wimey. Timey-wimey? What's that mean? Um, well, 
the chronology. It's a little inconsistent. Oh, is that, it, it okay. is more than a little inconsistent. Like, <laughs> like for example, when was uh, Khan Noonien Singh dictator of Third of Asia? Uh, Nineteen sixty nine. <laughs> so you know, well, I'm so, pretty I sure mean, that's just, when it just happened. Just that one question. Tell me exactly when that was what happened. Yeah, you can't. Uh, what about the bell riots, Paul? When were the bell riots? Or when are the, the, the bell riots? Aren't they happening the right now? The bell riots are 1224. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024. 12-2024